Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Rich, and I'm coming to you today with a heavy heart. Somebody who I cared for dearly has suddenly passed away. His name was David Clark. He was a good friend of mine, and he was a two-time podcast guest. And in honor of his memory, I wanted to do a couple things today. First of all, I wanted to re-release our first podcast, which we recorded back in November of 2014. That was episode 113. It was the first time that I met him. And also, I wanted to spend a few minutes remembering him with two very good friends of mine who also have graced this podcast platform in the past. Mishka Shubali, who's been on the show many times. You guys know Mishka. Uh, I was first introduced to David by Mishka. And also Josh Lajani, who's been on the show a number of times in the past. Uh, big podcast favorite as well. So um, let's talk to these guys. Mishka, Josh, how you guys doing? Doing good, considering. I... Uh... I made sure I ate something before we did this, so I, I felt like I would cry less if I had food in my stomach, and so far not working. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah. So for those that for those that don't know, uh, David Clark was an incredibly inspirational man. He's somebody who is known for this incredible weight loss journey that he went on. I think he lost something like 130, 150 pounds. He was pushing 320 or something like that at some point, um, was able to overcome that obstacle as well as overcome alcoholism. He reinvented himself wholesale. He adopted a plant-based diet and went on to become this incredibly accomplished ultra runner, somebody who Ran Leadville. He ran Badwater. He did this thing called the Boston Quad, where he ran the Boston Marathon back and forth four times. He ran across the United States with Charlie Engel and a couple other guys. And just yesterday, we're recording this on Friday, May 22nd, but yesterday on the 21st, he went in to the hospital for what was intended to be a fairly routine herniated disc procedure. And due to complications, passed away very suddenly. So this news is quite jarring and upsetting. And uh, you guys knew him well, better than I knew him, as a matter of fact. So I just thought it would be nice to kind of remember him and, and share a few thoughts on on what this guy meant to you. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> Shoot. <laughs> you know, Dave um was the first person i had like i had i had been following a bunch of ultra runners and i had also seen weight loss success stories you know um but dave was the first one where i had seen someone like i had seen both of those things together that made it seem possible to me not just to become a runner but to actually be like you know, uh, a prolific ultra runner, you know, mm -hmm. and that it made it, it gave me permission in a way to like, Hey, I can do this. I'll be okay. Dave did it. And that podcast in, in, in 2014, I had just been on not, you know, what a year before that. And 
I was thinking like I was something like, oh man, I've never like I've lost over two hundred and twenty five pounds, and I'm you know I was about to run my first ultra in two thousand and fifteen. I had signed up for it in it in February. And I was thinking I was like leading the charge of X fat guys, you know, <laughs> and I, I hear this, I hear this podcast with Dave and I'm just completely blown away. Like he's already there. He's already done it. He's doing it. And he wrote a book about it. And, um, it was just a profound night listening in, to that podcast for and, and learning of Dave Clark for the first time. And I'm lucky enough to have been able to meet him several times and share the mountain with him in Leadville and, and, um, and just visit and have heart to hearts over the phone, talking through my back problems. Mm. Uh, he's just a good guy. Yeah. He was a, a deeply soulful guy. And if there's one thing, you know, about David that I think, stood him apart was that he always was available. Like he always gave back more than he received and he never forgot that call to service. Like he just showed up for so many people and was such a massive inspiration to just thousands and thousands of people. What's ironic is like, I was actually podcasting rich when you called me yesterday about this. And, um, and, and one of the things that I was talking about, and, and this is one of those things that like I would think of all the time when I thought about Dave was possibility, right? Because it just takes, it just takes one person to do it, to do a thing, whether it's losing the weight or whether it's running the race or climbing to the top of the mountain, or, um, it just takes one person to do it, to change the thing from being impossible to possible. Mm. And, Dave did that again and again for not just for us, but for so many people that we know and so many people we love and like a part of this community around the podcast, you know, that like, you know, with, oh, it's impossible to take that much weight off and keep it off. Well, Dave Clark did it and, you know, it's impossible to run that far that long. Well, Dave Clark did it. It's impossible to, to invert your ego to just, you know, exactly what you said of like, Dave did effortlessly the thing that I have such a hard time with of just posting up and just being there and and embracing that challenge of being there for your fellow human beings and and giving and being generous. He was just a bottomless well of generosity. He always had time for people. He always had energy to listen to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think you said to me, you know, when people say to you, Mishka, you're an inspiration, <laughs> you say – yeah, that's only because you haven't met David Dude, Clark. He was, he was one of the I'm, bef like before I'd written or published anything. When I was like just getting my shit together, like getting sober and running and stuff, and I was like doing these races and starting to, to like maybe offer up to people like, oh yeah, you know, I used to drink a lot and now I don't. And somebody said his name to me, and they're like, you should check out this guy, Dave Clark. You know, and and so like he was. When I met him, dude, it was like meeting Superman. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what it was like. I was like, oh, shit, you're real. <laughs> and he was relentless. No matter what mountain he climbed, he was always eyeing the next thing. Like, you know, part of his disposition was that there was no rest for David Clark. Like, no matter what obstacle he was facing, he was always finding that glimmer of, of positive opportunity. Um you know, whether it's, you know, look, I've, I've been injured 
in, in running. So now I'm going to get on the bike or I'm going to go into the gym and learn how to be an MMA fighter. Like there was just no stopping this guy. And he was also prolific in his writing. He wrote this amazing uh, autobiography out there. Then he wrote Broken Open, which is more about um, the nature, like sort of this dark secret in endurance and ultra endurance sports where our relationship to this sport becomes unhealthy and his reckoning and, and kind of wrestling with that. And he just released this brand new book like last week, May 10th, called Eat Shit and Die, which everybody should pick up, especially if you want to support him and, and honor his legacy. I mean, three books and while he's doing all this other stuff and, and, and facing, you know, the kind of obstacles that, that you know, we all face as athletes and, and, and humans. I, I I had a relationship with Dave that was sort of like my relationship with Stephen King, you know, where it's like Stephen King has to write everything. And I would go on Facebook and see, and, and like Dave had just wrapped some in, insane challenge, donating all the money he raised to this charity. And I would log back in and, and he'd have another fucking one lined up like right after. And I was like, God, God <laughs> damn it, Dave. Like, I, you, you're just going to run everything? <laughs> like, are you just going to raise all the money? Are you going to help all the people? Like, damn it, dude. That's so funny. He was persistent, man. And I think that it has a lot to do with like the, you know, I looked up to him really, you know, obviously as a human and as a person who has lost a lot of weight, but really as an aspiring ultra runner, man, I, I, you know, I've been wanting this for so long, you know, to be one of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it, and, and he was not, he was just a guy that, that was there for me, not only as an experienced ultra runner to offer advice, um, but as one who was also morbidly obese at one point in time and could relate to me in ways that other people just don't can't, you know, mm. it's a really weird, twisted club. These like, I don't know why my heart's broken so bad. Like these um, formerly morbidly obese. I know how bad you had to hurt to get there. Mm. And uh, it just makes a certain bond. And to have one that, to have one of those humans that whose Venn diagram also overlaps in the area of, of what we do for fun, like what we do for like camaraderie and pleasure and community is, ultra running is like it was it was especially unique relationship with a with with um with a runner although we didn't get to meet in, in person often um i did i did look up to him uh in a in a very unique and specific way and he is there's gonna definitely be a void um in my life yeah I, I think I think what's interesting too, Josh, is that like the way you describe it, that's exactly how I feel about him. Uh -huh. You know, but I didn't have the experience of, of being morbidly obese and then losing all that weight. You know, and it's it's like it's a it's a small weird club that we have, you know, but like yeah. Dave was deeply ours. You know, he he belonged to us and he was one of those people who like when you met him he had all this strange amount of insight into your life as 
you know, as an addict, as, you know, somebody who had lost all this weight, as an ultra runner, as somebody, as an aspiring writer, it's, you know, he was just, motherfucker was a check in every box, you know, and I just, every time I saw him, I was like, man, you know me, you know, and, and he did from the instant I met him. And, and I, and I feel like we all have that experience of Dave, you know, that for, we feel like he was very specifically ours. Yeah. We're finishing each other's sentences the first time I ever met him. You know? <laughs> I think that there's something really special and unique about his arc in that it's not just this massive weight loss story. You know, I've known people that have lost tremendous amounts of weight. I know many, many people that have battled with and overcome their addiction turmoil. Um, but with David, it's sort of like you said, he checked all those boxes. But, you know, when you look at these images of him before, he wasn't just a, a, a large guy lost in the throes of alcoholism. There was a darkness to it, like a deep darkness oh. that you can see in that guy. And for him to transcend that and step into the light and be this beacon for so many people um, in a way that, you know, I, I, I struggle to even think of anyone else who comes close to, you know, that kind of example that he set for so many people. It's just a deep and profound loss for, for all of us. And the, the experience that he had in his life, you know, struggling as an alcoholic and an addict and, and somebody who was addicted to food and, and then, you know, addiction to the, to the racing, to, you know, to all the, you know, the crazy shit that he did, the, to see him in person, it, he just had those beautiful big blue eyes, like a, like a baby, you know? And, and so it was like, every time I saw him looking at his eyes, it was like he was getting younger, you know? And he just, he was so, so hungry for experience and for understanding and for knowledge and for empathy. You know, he just, uh, dude was like a heart in running shoes. You know, he cared about everybody. Well, he left us too soon. I believe he was 49 when he passed. Um, and he will be, uh, deeply, deeply missed. Yes, he will. Leadville will never be the same. Yeah. Not for me, you know. Excuse me. He was loved by many. And Mishka, you said when we talked on the phone the other day, you said, you know, I will I will just you know, that guy is just tattooed on my soul. Like I will never forget him. Like and I think he lives boldly within all of us and will forever. Absolutely, man. You know, I like didn't sleep great last night, dragged myself out of bed this morning. And I was thinking about what Dave used to say about, you know, like every day it's a new opportunity to go for a run. And I was like, you know what? He can't today, but I can. Mm -hmm. And so I dragged myself out there and was just had him in my head the whole time, you know, and I was thinking about him and he was, he, he wasn't fearless you know, he had, he had tons of fear and I'm sure he would tell you that he was mostly fear, but courage is feeling fear and doing the fucking thing anyway. Yeah. And that was his special, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, I feel like, you know, at the end of, you know, that he was probably like, oh man, so, so this is it, right? This is, you know, the, the great race, right? I, the, the one thing I haven't done yet. Yes. And like, 
well, fuck it. Let's go, man. I've been curious my whole life what this was about. Like, let's go for it, you know? And and I I feel like in my heart that just, you know, that at the end he was like, all right, this is the next big thing. This is the next big adventure, you know? I agree. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good um, place to put a pin on it. But before we get into um, this conversation, uh, two more things I think we need to talk about. One is um, we decided to set up a GoFundMe for David's family. Mishka, you're the, you're actually the one who set it up yeah. um, to raise money to help cover the costs associated with his passing. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Um, if you have the ability to contribute, please do. I'm sure it'll be appreciated and, and, and much needed by his family. He's left behind by Courtney, his girlfriend, yep. and three kids, right? Yeah. So they can use all the help uh, that, that they can get. And the second thing is we were talking about trying to figure out some kind of uh, community-run challenge that uh, we can all do together to help keep them in our hearts. So Mishka, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you were thinking on that note? So what I was, I was, I was doing on this, you know, today too, while I was on my run and thinking about Dave and thinking about the person that he was and, you know, his handle on everything was, we are Superman. It wasn't, it wasn't about I, it was about we, it was about us. It was about community. It was about all the strugglers. It was about, you know, the, the whole human race, you know? And, um, and he, he had no ego about anything that he'd done. You know, he was, he just, oh, it was fun. It was beautiful. You know, how are you doing? How's your running been? You know, your, your left foot was bothering you. You know, how, how you doing with that? So I, I feel like now it's time for us to take the light that he shone on us and shine it back on him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, his birthday was February 5th, two, five. So I say, a week from tomorrow, that's what, May 30th. Um, let's all go run out and run 2-5 for Dave, whether it's, you know, and I wanted, it seemed, it was felt important to me to make it a challenge that's open to everybody because Dave, when he started running, man, he could only make it a couple of steps because he was so fat and so out of shape, you know? So yeah. go out and run 0.25, go out, out and run 2.5, run 12.5, 22.5, you know, what, whatever it is for you, um, go out and do it. Keep Dave in your heart. Keep him in your head. Post about it. We want to hear wh how you remember him, how he touched you. And I think we're going to use the, uh, the hashtag, uh, we are David Clark, mm. you know, because he, he gave that we are Superman to us. That was, that was his gift to us. And I, I think we should give it back to him. I agree. Yeah, I love that. Um, so with heavy hearts, um, we're going to bid you adieu now. And uh, hopefully uh, listening to this conversation or revisiting it, if you heard it prior several years ago, will uh, bring him more present into your conscious awareness. We are all David Clark. That's true. We miss you, Dave. We love you, and you will not be forgotten. So thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. And without further ado, this is me and Dave Clark. 
Thanks for coming down, man. I'm glad to be here. Dude, you made the trip all the way from Colorado down to LA to sit with me, man. I'm That's so uh, honored by that. I really appreciate it. If I'd had more time, I'd have run. Yeah. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit more time, right? What, do you, what have you been doing since you've been in LA? Um, I've just been kind of hanging out a little bit. Uh, I got a chance to go down and meet some folks at uh, a running store, Front Runners, and do a group mm, run there. And- the one in Brentwood. Yeah. Uh, oh, no. Actually, I showed up at the one in Brentwood, but I was supposed to be at the one in West Hollywood. Uh, so <laughs> uh-huh. I ended up making it to the right one, though, and got to uh, talk about my book a little bit. And run oh, that's cool. Do you have a nice turnout of people, or what was it? Usually those things, like, I, whenever I do that kind of stuff, like, five people show up. You know, yeah, I've had both spectrums of the experience, you know, the, the five and the 50. This one was like, uh, uh-huh. I think there's like 20 people there. It was a pretty good turnout. Oh, that's cool. Did yeah. you do a run also or you yeah. just talk about the book? No, we did a run and I got a 100 miler coming up this Saturday. So uh-huh. I was supposed to do a nice little taper run and it turned into be like a five mile race with uh-huh. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, usually uh, that's what always happens when I do the group runs. Like uh, a lot of people that don't, you know, they're not ultra runners. So they go out, they run a lot faster than I run when I'm training. I always get intimidated. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think it was just because like, you know, I don't know, some guy, no one knows who he is, shows up from Colorado. So everyone wants to just kind of uh, flex and uh, test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, here comes Scott Jurek, right? <laughs> right? You know? Yeah, and it's hard to not just, you get caught up in it and you end up running fast. Of course. Cool. Feels what, good. What's the 100-miler uh, you're getting ready for? I'm going to go out to Javelina. Uh-huh. Yeah, cool. down in Arizona. Nice, man. That should be good. Yeah. Have you done, so what races have you done since Badwater 2013? Um, well, I did Badwater this year. Oh, you did? I didn't um, know that. Well, actually, it did me. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I got, uh, I had, uh, last year was just such a, a dream come true to get a chance to line up out there and, and to do it and finish it. And then this year, uh, even with the new course, I wanted to go out and see see if I could test myself a little bit against it. And I, I went out a bit aggressively. And, oh, you did, huh? Yeah. You know, you got know. a little ahead of yourself. I seem to learn the same lessons over and over again in life. <laughs> Yeah, well, I could tell from reading uh, your sobriety story, it's not a it's not a linear trajectory for you, nor is it for me, but nor is it for most people. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was with, uh, I just got back, I was up in the Bay Area for a week, and yesterday afternoon, I did a podcast with Dean Karnazes, who yeah. gave you a wonderful blurb for your book, by the way. Yeah. And we were talking about bad water, and, and he's like, man, I just can't figure that race out. Like some years I go in, I think I, ha- I have it totally dialed, and it kicks my butt. And other years, I feel like it's not going to go well, and then I have my best year. So he just he's like, I can't crack that nut. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Certainly he knows a hell of a lot more than I know about that kind of stuff. But I've experienced the same thing. I mean, I was, I was fitter and in better shape and I think even more prepared mentally um, mm. than I ever was. But, um, you know. That's the way ultras go, though. It is. You know? It's humbling. It'll, it'll well, smack just, you down. That's sport. You know, I think it's a sport in general. And, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things we were, we were talking about yesterday as well is, is the importance of failure. Not just the willingness to fail, but the failure itself because that's the place from which you can learn and grow. Like if you had a great race, then what do you take away from that? Yeah, I'm better than I was last year. You know, no, that's pat so on the true. back. That's so true. It's, I mean, it's good for the ego, right? You go throw down well, a PR yeah, yeah, yeah. and you have a good day. But you never. I don't remember ever saying, you know, wow, everything went great, and I learned so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it mm-hmm. usually happens when everything goes really, really bad. That's right. when you learn. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm like a good stubborn alcoholic. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> How has the uh, the process of, of kind of getting the book out there been for you? You know, it's been. 
incredible in, in every possible way. And, and, you know, the finish line for me was always finishing the book, writing it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I never really looked very much beyond that. So um, everything that's happened since then over the last couple of months has been, you know, definitely something that I hadn't anticipated and, and hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about. So, but I, I've been very blessed as usual to, to have some guys like Dean, to, mm-hmm. you know, endorse a book and Marshall all right to write the forward. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely helped, you yeah, know, get course. my foot in the door a few places. Yeah, you got some big, like and you got, uh, <laughs> you got Tim O'Donnell too gave you a blur. Marshall wrote the forward. So you're in good company with those guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. A yeah, blessing of living nice. in Boulder too. <laughs> uh-huh. Of course. Right. You're, 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 you throw a rock and you hit a training partner. That's right. Right. I always say that in Boulder, if you tell everyone you did an Ironman, they won't be impressed. They'll just ask you what your bike split was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be scared to live there. You know? <laughs> too many, too many super fit athletes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how you, long have you lived there? I've been in Colorado for about 20 years. And right. Outside. But most of that was not in Boulder, right? No, mostly in the Denver metro area. And I still live in outside of Boulder in Lafayette. Mm-hmm. And I live about eight miles outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But you go and do you, do you find people in Boulder to train with or are you like a solo guy when it comes to the training? You know, I'm not surprisingly a man of extremes when it comes to that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> spend, Shocking. <laughs> yeah. But I, I can spend a lot of time just, you know, running by myself and, and, and I can be very social too. You know, I like, I like it all. Like both of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like to be out there in my own head and, and stuff. And, and also it's good to just, you know. I've definitely benefited greatly from being able to run with guys uh, mm-hmm. and girls a lot stronger than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, that's that's what's great about that community, you know. I still, you know, I keep telling my wife, I'm like, let's go live in Boulder for a summer, just for a summer. You know, I, I'm sure I would get just epic training in, you know. I'm more of a lone wolf, though. I like to go out by myself, get the quiet time away from the kids and everything. But But it's good to mix it up with the company, I think. Uh, let's, uh, let's play a little game that I know you know well. (laughs) It's called, uh, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Okay. (laughs) You know that game, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, what it was like, man, that's, that's tough. Um, it was, it was pretty bad. You know, it it got, Mm -hmm. it got really, really dark and and really, really ugly. And, you know, I just kind of, you know, created this, uh, this place for myself where, you know, this whole image of who I was. And, and of course, you know, I found a way to uh, put alcohol and, and, and using in the middle of that identity. And mm-hmm. so it never seemed odd, you know, to, to be in that place. And, and I had, uh, you know, I had like all of us, a tough childhood and, and a lot of things that were, you know, disturbing me in there. And, and I was running away from it. And, um, you know, at first it was chasing the kind of the concept of normalcy, you know, mm-hmm. and, just wanting to feel attached to society and, and owning a home, which seemed really uh, almost impossible to me at one point in my life. And, and then starting a business and being successful in that and all these things that I was, I was chasing just never really made me happy, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I tried to, uh, silence, you know, those, those, um, those guiding voices, if you will, from the outside in and, mm-hmm. You know, as I did that and as I went along, um, my chemical abuse, my substance abuse, it just got darker and darker. And it went from partying and having fun and goofing off to, you know, just sitting by myself, you know, in, in, in the dark and at night and drinking. And it's funny, it's like all these things that I used, used as, um, you know, levels or barometers to, to gauge my drinking and, and how I was normal. Well, at least I'm not drinking in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I'm not, you know, waking up in the bushes somewhere, you know, and 
one by one, all those things yeah, all kind of ticked off. <laughs> yeah, like, well, yeah. yeah, but you know. But there's always somebody lower. There you is. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and you, could, you can spin that wheel forever. And I found reading, you know, that aspect of your story to be, you know, really profound for me. I mean, I emotionally related uh, with it completely. You know, the circumstances of some of your story is very different from mine, but it's the same story, you know. And, and what, I, what, I, what really touched me the most was how you described the sort of, uh, you know, the drinking in isolation. You know, I think that's something that a lot of people can't really grasp. I think a normal person will read these stories in your book and they'll think that, you know, I don't, I can't, you know, how does somebody do that? Like, I don't understand, you know, and I'm reading and I'm right with you, you know. Right. It's like, you know, I couldn't wait to get home from the party so then I could really start my drinking, you know, right. so I could, that's when the good drinking starts, you know, and, and all the kind of, um, shame that comes with that and you know that that progressive withdrawal from society and you know as you sink down then you're you start surrounding yourself with lower companions but you always surround yourself with the other people that are doing the kind of same thing that you're doing so you never have like an objective mirror to reflect the reality of your behavior oh absolutely yeah it's funny because I mean, how could you expect someone who's who's never been there to understand when even going back and, and reading it and reliving it, I go, mm-hmm. how the hell did I not know that I was well, just totally knew, out of control? But you did know. I mean, right, you knew right. when you were 13. You know, you knew on some unconscious level that this was probably going to be a problem down the line. And I, I remember yeah. sort of harboring that kind of semi-conscious thought. Like, you're not really aware, like, oh, I'm an alcoholic, but you have that little tickle, like early on where you're like, yeah, this might not go so well. No, you're right. It wasn't so much as not knowing is, is like just how could I not, you know, be actively aware of how destructive it was. But no, mm-hmm. you're, you're so right. No, I always knew that what I was doing wasn't exactly normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, drink when it's good, drink when it's bad. And what's also interesting is that, you know, in the midst of like a pretty insane drinking career, you're still able to like put together this amazing business and succeed and make tons of money. I mean, you must be an unbelievable salesman because, uh, you know, I think that the, the kind of outsider perspective would be if you're drinking like that, there's no way you can function. But the alcoholic is a very resourceful individual, you know, very scrappy. And I thought it was I thought it was very uh, interesting how you described how you were able to kind of keep all the plates spinning for as long as you did. Yeah, I, I think that the picture that a lot of people have of the alcoholic is is, is woefully inad- in, or inaccurate. Mm-hmm. You know, like like you said, it's you know it's not the the bum sitting on the street corner, you know, you know drinking and sitting around in his own filth. Although we we can all end up there if we yeah. stay on long enough. It's heading it's heading that way. But no, it's 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 the guy that's you know doing a pretty reasonable job at uh, creating an illusion of what his life looks like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and getting farther and farther away from that illusion as he goes, you know, deeper and deeper in. Right. There's this great disconnect and there's this growing awareness that, yeah, I'm not, this is, this is a problem. You know, you're getting into trouble all the, I mean, you know, you know, you know that this is not good. You're powerless to stop and to compensate for that, you go overtime on work and all those other things because you can, that helps put the facade up that your life is actually functional. Yeah, and it, and it gives you, you know, proof that you are okay. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, hey, well, at least I'm doing this, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I'm okay, you know. Right. And, and that kind of feeling of the ego, like there's that episode in the book where you're, you go into that huge pitch meeting, right, and you have, 
you have, you know, brass balls and, you know, you kind of like throw down the gauntlet on this deal, like in a pretty risky way and you get what you wanted out of that. So what I took away from that story is sort of this um, weird thing that I think only the alcoholic can truly understand, which is having this huge ego, like thinking you're, you're more entitled and better than everybody else, but also simultaneously harboring this like horrible shame that you're a piece of shit and you're worse than everybody, completely worthless and, you know, shouldn't even, even be breathing air. Like only the alcoholic can like entertain those two thoughts at the same time. Yeah, the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and the funny thing is like go, looking back and reliving it and writing it and – you know, I think maybe at some point I thought, you know, I was doing a really good job at controlling other people and circumstances and manipulating my environment. But really, it was just me that I was manipulating and controlling. And mm-hmm. those other things, you know, th- those could have happened no matter what, just because, you know, I was creating value in the industry that I that I was in. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't have to go in and, and totally try to manipulate and control, but you don't know any other way when you're now, I have to control everything that's going on right now, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's obviously, it's bullshit. It's, it's impossible. You can't even control it yourself. How are you going to control everyone else? Right. Uh, let alone controlling 9-11 and then, you know, the market crashing and everything that happened to your business as a result, like all of these kind of things that happened to you, things are progressively being taken away from you. You're holding on stronger and stronger to the drinking, but also developing this awareness that, you know, you're going to have to stop. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was an interesting, um, time, you know, um, it would have been really, you know, I've always had this kind of like alarm bell, you know, that can, that can go off. Even when, when I was falling farther and farther down the hole, there's all these levels where these alarm bells would go off and, and, and I would sense that I was, you know, dropping down another level. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that, and that was certainly one of them. And, you know, it was really tempting and, and alluring to to blame the loss of my business on nine eleven itself and mm-hmm. and what happened in the economic aftermath, and um, it was something that I just couldn't really let myself do because I knew it was going to to crush me and mm-hmm. and send me even farther farther down. So I just try to move on. You know, mm-hmm. well, playing the victim is is always the easy way out, and the alcoholic is no stranger to playing the victim. No, no. But I, I thought that your wife showed tremendous, or now your ex-wife, but your wife at the time showed tremendous patience with you. I mean, she had to be just coming unglued while this was going on. Yeah, um, that's a that's a tough subject. Um, she was, I mean, she was and is an, an amazing person. She's she's incredibly patient, but our relationship was was very odd and and very hard to really um, put in perspective. You know, we. Um, grew apart, no, no shock there with, mm-hmm. with my behavior in, in over those years. But, you know, we never had any arguments about my drinking. You know, there, there was never that, that place. It was obviously pushing us apart. It was obviously creating a lot of damage in our relationship, but it, w- it wasn't presenting itself as a problem. It wasn't mm-hmm. a, a topic of conversation. Um, I think Probably, if I had to be really honest, it was because she was afraid of engaging me in the debate because, you know, I'm, I'm a reasonably good debater, especially when drunk and passionate. Mm-hmm. And I think she just had to step back and, and try to let me figure it out. And uh, she, she's amazing and, and we're still really good friends today. But, um, yeah, she's, she's something else. Yeah, I think that the most um, 
heart-wrenching part of the book for me was the night that you stay up uh, on Christmas Eve drinking super late and you're just out of your mind and then you realize like you haven't wrapped these presents and, you know, you're just unable to kind of get that job done and and the presents end up with, you know, masking tape on them or just kind of looking like a mess and and the kind of shame the next morning of, of, of that dawning on you and realizing that. I mean, I think if there was ever a moment where your wife would be like, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't have this anymore, that would have been it. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like, of all the, you know how it is, like, when you, when you go about, you know, when, when I started to write the book, I made a deal with myself that I wasn't going to hold anything back that, mm-hmm. that I thought would be too embarrassing or, you know, things I wrote about it, like, you know, driving drunk and stuff like that. I, I didn't want to put that in there because I didn't want, mm-hmm. I know the stigma that's attached to that and I didn't want people chasing after me. But I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to put what's in there and then if it's too much, I just won't release the book. But I'll have a, a accurate product when I'm done. And so you go through all these moments, these low moments, you know, and, and I chose a handful of thousands, you know, and, and right. I tend to choose the ones that were, for whatever reason, I was present enough at that time to, to remember it. But the reality is most of them I didn't remember and I had no idea what happened the night before. But of all the things that I talked about in the book, the, the other addicts that I talked to always point out the Christmas present story. Mm-hmm. And, and not some of the other ones like, you know, it's that one. And, and I think because we've all just been in that place where you're, you're, you're so drunk, you're so out of it that you can't do this stupidly easy task. And you, your brain knows you should be able to do it and, and it becomes more and more frustrating and, and more and more shameful and, and humiliating and, and everything all, all wrapped into one. And I if, if I could... You know, if I would have written the story as a script, that would have been my low. You know, that would have been the moment that I mm-hmm. rose up from the ashes and created a new life because I don't know that I've ever felt less of a human being than I did that Christmas morning. But mm-hmm. I kept going. Well, you know, I think it it, it highlights – well, there's, there's this idea that the alcoholic will harbor that, you know, hey, leave me alone. I'm just – you know, I'm, I'm allowed to do what I want to myself. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just – you know, but – that episode really sort of punctuates, you know, the fact that there are other people involved, and in particular, like young children on a very important day, which I think elevates the emotional kind of impact of something like that. Um, but you know, I related to I related to the emotions completely, and and I related to the kind of you know roller coaster ride of saying, yeah, I got to get my life together. It's time to get sober, and then just not being able to do it or that memory so quickly fading and then you're back to doing what you're always doing and how long it took before, you know, I was really able to get to that place to really surrender and be willing to accept help and do the work. But, you know, my lowest moment was a year and a half before I got sober, you know, and if I was writing the narrative, you know, in the movie script, that would have been the moment, you know, but that's not the way it works. Yeah. You know, that's not the way it works. It, it, you're ready when you're ready, and it doesn't always make sense, and it's not always logical. And then, you know, absolutely right. And, and then there's that other aspect, too, that I think like a lot of my friends who, who haven't dealt with addiction in their own lives think that, you know, my, my sobriety date was August 5th in 2005. And that they think that maybe if it wouldn't have been that date, it would have been August 10th, 
or maybe in September, but mm. I was, you know, that everything was pushing towards that point. But you know, the reality is that if I wouldn't have jumped off then, I could still be there now. You might be drinking now, yeah, yeah or you might be dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's those little cracks in the door, those precious moments where you have just the slightest sliver of willingness, you know, but if you don't act on that, then who knows if that ever, you're ever blessed with that opportunity again, you know, it really is a precious thing. Um, The other thing that that I thought was really impactful was um, this idea that, you know, the alcoholic is always trying to solve the problem with their mind, but they're not aware that their mind is is being poisoned by chemicals, right? So your perception of the world is altered and you're trying to solve a problem from, you know, a, from a place that's not healthy, you know, but you don't have the objectivity to see that because everything you're processing, everything that you're taking in through your eyes and your ears is going through this machine that is broken. Yeah. Right? And it, and and so it's all it's impossible to have any objectivity on the reality of your situation, which makes it all the more crucial. Like, you know, in recovery, you, t- you hear about surrender, you hear about that willingness to ask for help. And, you know, without the intervention of a third party to kind of come into that equation, it, it's extremely difficult. It's, it's like a miracle that anybody ever gets sober. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you abusing your brain over and over again and killing your brain cells and then mm-hmm. trying to use your, your warped brain to, to convince yourself <laughs> to not keep drinking. It's, yeah. I, it, it is an absolute miracle, and, and we all know, those of us that have, have made it out, that we got lucky. You know, we, we just, mm. I don't know why, but why it happened on that day, but it did. And, and you know, along with that comes a, a huge sense of gratitude, you know, and a huge sense of, of just, you know, bewilderment. You know, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you look at it and you're like, I don't know how I ever, I, I don't know how I ever got that low, and I don't know how the hell I ever got out. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I loved was how you describe uh, sleep and the lack thereof. And I don't hear that really discussed that often. But for me, like I can remember so vividly, like I never just slept. Either I passed out or I was tossing and turning with bed spins and throwing up or, or you know, trying to go a couple days without drinking. And the sleepless nights that accompany that are some of the most painful nights I've ever had, like the hallucinations and the... the you know, the sweating in the sheets and, and just never, ever being able to just get a legitimate night of sleep without being altered. Yeah, there comes this like crazy time warp, right? Where you, you're, you, you feel like you don't have enough time to adequately uh, abuse and, and, and <laughs> worship your drug. And you, you don't ever just retire for the evening. You just run out of time. And or, or your body just shuts you down before before you get to wherever it is you're searching for. And yeah, it's it's like you said, it, there's no sleep. There's no like, okay, the night's over and now I've mm-hmm. had my fill and I'm going to, you know, just go, go in to and sleep. go to sleep. I always, when I watch up. movies and TV and I see people like drinking and then they just go home and go to bed, I'm like, <laughs> how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> even my, even the friends are out there and they get home at 2 a.m. and go to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't understand how that, that that works at all. Like either I have to drink enough until I completely black out to go to sleep. I would, the last thing I would do, no matter if it was 3 o'clock in the morning or what time it was and how much I had to drink is I would pour, I would take like a, a rocks glass or a juice glass and, and just fill it full of 90 proof something and carry it up to bed with me. Mm-hmm. And... 
I'm not going to feel any benefit or effect of that. It was more of a, a possession thing. I just needed to have it with me. And, and half the time, I didn't even drink it. I'd go and set it down in the nightstand next to me, and, and I could sleep because I knew it was there. But it was nonstop drink until the moment that consciousness left. And mm-hmm. I was so aware of, and I, I talked about it in the book, of that first time when I just slept. Right. I it's a miracle. Slept. Yeah, like when you, you're like, oh, my God. I have never done this yeah, in, in since years. Since I was like 12. I, I didn't know what this was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was very palpable the way you described that. I mean, when you go out and like yesterday when you talk to people or, you know, you kind of interact with people that have read the book, you know, normal people, non, non-alcoholics, non-addicts, I mean, what is their reaction to reading, you know, the kind of drunkologue aspect of the book? You know, it's it's a mixed bag, but... I think, um, you know, it's the one thing I hear a lot is um, I'm glad you're still alive, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's an interesting thing to hear from people, especially people that don't know you and have never met you. And, and it's, it's, um, it's quite common and it just drives home that point of, of, you know, looking from the outside in how destructive and, and how, how terrible that behavior was. And, um, I think one of the most surprising things that, that's come out of this, you know, I, I kind of expected that um, just very much in the same way when I read your book, I knew where you were, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, it, and it triggered that, those emotions in me and I could feel like the weight of the glass you were holding mm-hmm. or, or the thoughts that you were thinking. Um, I expected the book to, to reach other people who'd been in similar circumstances. But what I haven't expected or didn't expect was some of the family members. And um, I had a, a lady, I recently ran a road marathon in, Den- in uh, Leadville. And mm-hmm. a lady came out to the finish line and was waiting for me to finish. And she wanted to tell me about her son who had just passed away. And uh, he had a, uh, OD'd on heroin and he was mm-hmm. 26 years old. And she just wanted to tell me that uh, the book, reading it, gave her some insight as to what her son might have been feeling and what mm-hmm. he might have been thinking. Because from the outside in, a lot of people just think it's, you know, indulgent, you know, behavior. And it's, and it is, and it is, it's, it's selfish and it's indulgent, but, um, you know, we could talk for hours and hours on whether it's a disease and, and, and all these things that are, that are such hot topics. But the bottom line is once the addict's in, he's in, and it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter, you know, how you got there or, or what happened. But, um, and I had the same exact thing happen, um, at uh, a gym, I own a gym in, in Lafayette mm-hmm. and I had someone just show up whose wife had, uh, had back surgery. I talk about my back surgery mm-hmm. in the book and she was prescribed a whole trough of narcotics and she got addicted and she overdosed and she died and, mm. and it left her family like just oxy or what, what was it? I never asked exactly yeah. what, what, um, what they had her on, but, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, and it's my, it's, it's my hope that, um, that it continues to go that way and it continues to offer some sort of, a you know, understanding or peace for people who, who are trying to figure out why a, why a loved one is, is so lost and, and, and so so much struggling. Yeah, I think it accomplishes that. I mean, you did a very deft job of describing the powerlessness and the desperation, the desire to change, but, you know, the, the, you know, the inability to and, and the shame that accompanies that. Because I think if you, if you don't, you know, if you haven't had uh, a close encounter with somebody who's struggling with this disease or condition, however you want to qualify it, it's, it is easy to go like, why can't they just snap out of it? Like what's, I don't get it, you know, just stop. But 
it's so much more complicated than that. And, and you really painted this, you know, pastiche of the emotional landscape that, that accompanies it. And it was, it was painful to read, but I also, I'm like, yeah, I'm right there with you, you know, but I remember very, very vividly going to see that movie, Leaving Las Vegas mm-hmm. with a buddy of mine. And I'm just watching Nicolas Cage do his thing. And I'm like, yeah, man, let's do it. Like, looks like a good time to me. Right. Like, I'm like, yep, I'll do that too. Yeah, I could see, yeah, I could see why he'd make that decision. You know, like my friend is just horrified at the whole thing, you know? And I was like, oh yeah, like, and this was before I got sober, you know, you know it was very evident, like, oh, I think differently, you know? I'm yeah. seeing the world through a different lens. Yeah. Did you watch Flight? Yeah. 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 My uh, my friend John Gatons wrote that book. Oh. I mean, wrote that script, and you know he's a friend that I know from recovery. Obviously, I mean he's writing that from probably based you know on some of his own experiences, but in very very powerful. You know, people think it's about a you know an airplane crash or whatever. No, this is a this is an incredibly potent story about what it's like to be an alcoholic. A story very well told. Yeah, I, I was honestly one of those people. I was I was mm-hmm. absolutely blindsided by the movie. I went uh, with a friend, and I was expecting you don't a know movie about. No, I, I yeah. had no idea, and, and I was, you know, I had tears spilling out of my eyes, rolling down my cheeks the whole time. I, I was, it was, it was very emotional, and mm-hmm. I think they did a really good job at showing that. You know, it's not a matter of what you're going to do. You know, you're going to drink. It's mm-hmm. going to happen. It's just a matter of whatever what you're doing at the same time. Right. 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 Yeah. And also the way that you describe kind of your trigger situations, like that first time you had to go to the airport, you know, and what airports represented for you. I mean, for me, it's like hotels or, or like going to a foreign city where no one knows me, you know, and you're like, Ooh, you know, I could, I could get away with something here. No one would know. And like that demon on your shoulder is right there. And, and trying to kind of prepare for those situations, the amount of like work, you know, recovery work that has to go into getting ready to, you know, walk through a scenario that you're so programmed to drink or use and is, is, you know, is, is challenging. And like, just got you know, just reading you, feeling you like going into that airport and, and the guys that you're with are, are at the bar and they're, are, they're encouraging you to drink. Like, ugh, it's so, it's so brutal. I honestly have no idea how I made it for that through mm-hmm. that first two weeks. Right. You know, I mean, of all the times that I had everything perfectly aligned for me, to get clean and I didn't do it. You know, I had the yeah. time, I had the time away from work. I had no stress, I had all these things and it just didn't matter. And then, you know, once I, I finally did make the decision, everything kind of aligned to, to screw me up and knock me off track and it just didn't matter at that mm-hmm. point. And, but that's the way it works. It and reminded it, me of the story in the big book where, where Bill W is newly sober and he has to go out of town and he's in this hotel and he's so close to drinking and he just goes to that payphone and calls the hospital and says, do you have any alcoholics, you know, that I can go talk to? Right. And that saves him. And he's like, if that payphone wasn't there, yeah. he was a goner. You know, and it's funny because like I'm talking to, to family members and stuff who are just really struggling and in the whole enabling addicts and stuff like that is something that is just so hard and, and occupies so much mm-hmm. of my time and talking to other people. And I'm dealing with it right now with my own brother. Yeah, and, I wanted to get into that a little bit. And, you know, it's you have to be there for them and you have to love them. But um, the point being that once the alcoholic truly makes up their mind that they're done and it's real, ain't nothing going to stop Mm-hmm. You know, so you, we have this tendency that, you know, the family members are like, oh, if I say the wrong thing, if I do the wrong thing, if I look at no, them the no, wrong no. way, it's going <laughs> to yeah. screw it all up. And the reality is, no, no, there's, there's nothing you can do to make him use. He's going to do that all by himself. 
and there's nothing you can do to to get him better. Once once he makes up his mind, he'll need support, he'll need help, he'll need mm-hmm. all these things, but nothing's going to stop him. You know, mm-hmm. that has to come from inside. So your brother is out there still. He is. He is in um, older older brother, right? Younger brother. Oh, younger. Ten years. Oh, ten years younger. Yeah, wow. I have I have three brothers. Mm-hmm. I have one older and two two younger, and uh, two of us have the addiction demons chasing us around and two of us don't so mm-hmm. go figure and so how is you know how do you navigate that like what is your communication like if any like for somebody who's out there listening who's dealing with the same thing as a family member it's fucked up man i mean it's mm-hmm. really hard because i hear my own advice echoing in my ear and i know it's right because other people have told me it <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it's just part of the the truths of the addiction but I, I feel the same thing other people feel. I, I want to, you know, help them out, you know, and I, and I want to believe, you know, that, you know, I can send him 20 bucks and he's not going to buy heroin with it. You know, that, you know, he, mm-hmm. yeah, all those same things. But I know I know I can't. And but honestly, it's it's almost like you would think that being an addict would give you um, a certain amount of insight in helping another addict. And that's true. But really, it's it's almost unrelated. I feel like what I'm going through as a family member trying to help my brother is almost entirely unrelated to what I went through as an addict myself. It, it allows me a window to, mm-hmm. to, to understand what he's thinking and, and to have some empathy. But it's it's such a, a difficult experience. And, and it's it's up there with one of the, the toughest things I've ever gone through in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you say that because the cornerstone of recovery is one alcoholic talking to yeah. another. Uh, and certainly you've endured enough to be able to have, you know, common ground with your brother to have that dialogue. But what you can't do is gift him with the willingness that's required for him to even listen to you, let alone take action on anything that you're telling him. Yeah. And, and absolutely true. And, and maybe I should be a little more clear. It's like, um, I don't, in dealing with just me and another alcoholic, it's an entirely different dynamic in me dealing with my brother because oh, I'm feeling right, right, right. that the, emotional the component. familial bond and all of that. Yeah, and that's definitely clouds it and makes it really mm-hmm. hard. And, it, and it's given me a, a whole new way to understand you know, what the family members are going through with, mm-hmm. with their loved ones because it's, it's real easy to just – you know, to be in that sponsor role and say, well, yeah, I know what your problem is. You haven't screwed up your life enough yet. You know, it's not bad enough for you right. yet. As soon as it you gets need bad. You to go out and drink a little more. Right. Yeah. And to, to do that with your brother is really hard. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. especially when they're calling and they're saying, I'm going to be on the street and, you know, can you take me in and, and all this stuff. And, it, yeah, and it's you're just, thinking, if I don't, then and, and he dies or something happens, you know, I have to carry that with me. Yeah, you can't be that dispassionate, you know, sounding board. Because, yeah, you're dealing with other people at an arm's length. You're like, here's what you do. Do it or don't. I'm not attached to it. Right. Here's, the, here's the solution. And then you, you're you not thinking about it the rest of the day. You yeah. Know? And it's been a process because that's kind of the way it's had to go. And mm-hmm. so our relationship isn't real good right now, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I was just telling my mom that, um, you know, he's he's got he's to gotta be the architect of his own recovery. And um, when that happens, there's nothing we won't do to help him. But right. I can't tell him how – I mean I can tell him how I did it. I can share with him how I did it. I can tell him what I thought, what I felt and point him in the right direction. But ultimately, you know, he's, the truth comes from within, right? It's, it's not something we find from the outside and bring into our lives. It's, it's something that was always there that we just kind of discover. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's important for 
family members out there who are who are dealing with this to understand that that's very different from trying to conjole a family member into getting sober to get you off their back. Right. You know, that's not willingness. That's no. a temporary band-aid that will not hold ultimately. I mean, there's of course there's the the occasion where, you know, you do an intervention and somebody begrudgingly goes into rehab and then they get it when they're in there. Uh, but the more typical case is, you know, it doesn't stick because they're not ready right. because it's not being driven by their own desire. It's being driven by the fear and the love of family members who are desperate. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So it's complicated. It's it, hard, man. It is. We're, I mean, we're what, crazy creatures. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that moment in August that tipped the scale for you? You know, um, it was just a... Uh, I think it was, we kind of talked about before, you know, alarm bells, you know, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I kind of was a, a, aware of each time my, my drinking and my, my use was uh, going to a new level of destruction. And, and um, that morning, there was just something really heavy about it. And I think that, um, I think that that was going to be a significant day for me one way or the other. And I think I was going to either entirely give up and just go go about the process of, of ending it, you know, maybe slowly, maybe quickly, or I was going to stand up and start to fight. And, um, and, uh, I just felt like I had that, that one, one, one shot, that one little glimpse. Mm-hmm. And, and I just jumped on before I could think about it. I, I've related it to jumping out of a car, you know, like I was driving in a car and, and I thought I was driving the car and taking it to all these nice places. And one day I realized I was in the passenger side and I, I had mm-hmm. no control over where the car was going. And I kind of hung out there for a while too. And it's like, okay, well, I'll just see where this thing's going. Mm-hmm. And then that, that day I just opened the door and I jumped out. And mm-hmm. before I could even think about it, like all the times I tried to, you know, wrap it into this perfect thing that made sense and, you know, wrestle every demon down into a perfectly, you know, understandable thing. And, and it never worked, obviously. Right. So I had to trust the process and, you know, it's kind of just like talking about running 100 miles or something like that. You can't get to that place where you're doing some run and trying to convince yourself why it's a good idea because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a good idea. Right, right. You just got to run, and that's that's what I did with the recovery. I just I just took the moment and kept moving forward. And right, and and the you know what you learn in recovery is that you're always in the passenger seat ultimately, yeah. and it's it's when you think that you're in the driver's seat or you try to take the wheel that you end up veering off into the wrong direction. And that's a, yeah. that's a you know, kind of an ephemeral idea that we could spend hours talking about. But, yeah. but just that's part of the surrender of realizing, like, not only am I not in control, like, there are very few things that I actually can control. Right. One of them is whether I drink or not today. Right but now. most things, you know, are pretty much beyond my reach. Yeah. And it's interesting that that the day that you had that moment was not, you know, after a car wreck or being put in jail. I mean, it was similar with me. Like, it was a really uneventful morning, like, in terms of, like, events that had happened to me. You know, nothing, you know, I was hung over, but it wasn't on the heels of anything super traumatic. But there was just, it was different. You know, I woke up and I was like, I'm going to die. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. like, I'm, I'm ready or, 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 yeah, there's no turning back. Yeah. You know, it was very inexplicable. It wasn't, you know, unicorns and rainbows and angels, but, you right. know, I still would qualify it as, you know, a spiritual experience. No doubt. Because it was, it, it came out of nowhere. It wasn't, it wasn't triggered by 
any particular event. You know, it was triggered by the accumulation of many years and terrible things, but that little gift of willingness just sort of materialized. It's funny because I, I, I asked for help that day and I'd probably asked for help before, but it was always just some sort of exercise and melodrama, mm. you know, and, 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 and wanting to be pitied more than anything. Alcoholics are good at that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I meant it. I meant it that time. I felt that the realness that I was not able to do this anymore. And mm-hmm. I was totally powerless. You know, I was, I was in over my head. I was getting my ass kicked and it wasn't going to get any better. And, and, and I right. felt myself giving up. I felt that was, that, I think that was the most scary thing is I felt myself like I always kind of had a little bit of fight. You know, I'm going to figure this out one day. And, you know, I always had envisioned that, you know, <laughs> there would be a big intervention and mm-hmm. they'd send me off to rehab and I'd come back and everything would be great. You right. know, and, and um, but I felt I, all of that was gone. You know, I, I didn't even have any, any visions of getting better anymore. And, and I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like the idea of giving up. But you had never been to an AA meeting before. It wasn't like you had kind of made fits and starts or tried. Oh, no, I'd been to a lot of AA Oh, you meetings. had? Okay. Yeah. In fact, um, usually what would happen is I would, there would be one of those, those bad days, like that should be your bottom. Right. You know, I'd wake up and not remember where my car was and, and you know, just have That's all That's not the- so bad. That's every day. <laughs> no, it yeah. really was every day. <laughs> but, or like the, the time I talked about in the book where I, I was vomiting out of my truck window mm-hmm. driving home. And yeah. That should have been, that should have been my last day, you know. I should have said, oh, shit, I didn't kill anybody today. That's, that's good. Let's jump right. off this roller coaster now. But um, I would have one of those mornings, and I, would, and, I, and I would wake up, and I'd go to AA that night, and I'd go, see, I knew it. I don't have a problem. I don't have anything in common with any of these people. You know, right. These are the guys with the problem. And I would, it was like an affirmation or an excuse to go drink some more. Mm-hmm. And, and I briefly do talk about it in there where I talked about the, fi- the time I really did go to a meeting. And I found what I did have in common with all those guys, which is, you know, alcohol, obviously, mm-hmm. namely. Um, it, was, uh, it was the same experience we talked about with sleep. It's like, how could you do something over and over again and never experience it? Mm-hmm. And I'd been to probably 15 or 20 AA meetings, and mm-hmm. they just never meant anything to me. And I mean, I think I tried to do the 90 and 90 like five or six different oh, times. You did. Oh, oh, yeah. Wow. And, and I think I made wow. three or four days. Uh-huh. You know, and then I'd be like, what am I doing? I own a company. You yeah. know, this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I was court ordered. So I did it for that reason. And I was just a, yeah, I, it was okay. And I was well-intentioned when I went. I was going to get sober, you know. But then it just, I was kind of a tourist. Like I intellectualized the whole thing. Like yeah. I get it. I understand. Like I'm not going to do all this writing stuff down. I don't need to. Like I can make that list in my head. So I've done that. Right yeah, I've done that. On to the next thing. Like I've solved this problem. And, and of course that didn't work, you know. But you have to have your, you know, you got to go through all those experiments, I think. Yeah. And I think people... You know, a lot of people out there don't, they don't know that. They don't know how nonlinear the, uh, the journey to recovery is for, you know, 99% of the people that are sober out there. They think, oh, they go to rehab and they're fine or they go to AA and everything changes or a therapist or whatever, you know, version it is. But it's usually, you know, a lot of, you know, ups and downs and relapses and, you know, people are always you know, surprised when somebody relapses. But that's the natural state of the alcoholic. The miracle is that all those days that they didn't drink, you know, they're, they're like, they're wired to drink. You know, yeah. we're wired to drink. So every day that you don't, 
is the gift. Absolutely. And I so, just had nine years, and so it's yeah, a good start. It's amazing. Congrats, <laughs> it's man. It's a good start. Yeah, that's fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> Very cool. So let's talk about the weight thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, you got fat. That was fat as hell, man. <laughs> 320 pounds. 320, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I can't, I mean, looking at you now, it's really hard to picture that. I mean, I, I saw the pictures in the book, but, you know, you were a big boy. Yeah, I was, I was ultra before I knew it had anything to do with running, man. Mm-hmm. Eating, drinking, whatever, <laughs> man. <laughs> and it's funny because I have people say to me, you know, isn't all that running bad for your knees? And I always say, you know, waiting in line for my third Big Mac weighing 320 pounds was bad for my knees. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but yeah, I, um, you know, food was the same thing, you know. I mean, the process was was pretty much identical, you know, between what was going on with my weight and what was going on with my drinking. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about food as anything other than making me feel good. You know, that's what it was for. I didn't, and even though I knew better, at some intellectually, I knew better. I mean, mm-hmm. I could I could have written it out for you and told you exactly how all this stuff works, but it didn't matter because that's not how I saw food. And and it's funny because I talk a little bit about there in that that I had this this concept of food and who was thin and who was fat, and and I had it all, of course, figured out. I had everything figured out. I knew mm-hmm. exactly how everything worked, right? But I, let me tell you how it is. <laughs> but I would see standing you know, at three hundred and twenty pounds right. and like with a fifth of you know bourbon. <laughs> I got this figured yeah. out. Well, you know that's interesting because I remember telling my dad, and you know how it works. Like your family members, they want to let you off the hook, right? They don't want. You know, a lot of times, you know, for for the the high bottomers, if you will, the ones that didn't end up on the street, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially if you've had a, a level of success at some point in your life, your family wants to believe they want to let you off the hook, and they don't want to think you have a problem. And, and you, you drink too much, obviously, you mm-hmm. need to stop that. But there's nothing wrong with you, you know. Well, that because then it becomes a reflection of them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I told my dad once, I was like, you know, I used to have this this concept of like, well, yeah, I'm overweight, and yeah, I drink too much. But other than that, I got life figured out. Right. And I'm, I'm like, I realize the stupidity and the insanity of that now, you know. And I like to say, you know, I wasn't overweight. I wasn't an alcoholic. I was broken. I was a broken human being. The, the food, the alcohol, that was a symptom. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to live life at all. I had no idea how to live life. I had no idea how to be happy. I had no idea how to sit and just be still. And, and the, the food and the drugs and the alcohol was just something I could do in the meantime because I couldn't be still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the other thing that, that, that I think a lot of people aren't really fully in touch with, that, that alcohol is the solution for the alcoholic until it's the problem. And the alcohol and the effects of alcohol on the alcoholic are a symptomatic, you know, manifestation of a disease that's really kind of a spiritual malady. It's like there's something wrong with this person, drinking alcohol or taking drugs solves that temporarily until right. it stops working. And the drive to use is, is the kind of uh, confused path you know, of the diseased individual to solve this problem because they don't have any other answer. And recovery yeah. is about you know, blazing this frightening trail of trying to repair this broken soul. You know, that's what it, that's what it really is. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the running and the journey that you've been on, I mean, those are kind of outward manifestations of this path towards healing, this path towards wholeness, this path towards self-knowledge, self-understanding of, of putting those pieces back together. Yeah. 
Yeah, undoubtedly. And, you know, and that's what I see. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, the running, you just transferred all your addiction to oh the running. God. Yeah, we can. You know? yeah. So, all right, what's your take on <laughs> So many times I have re- people in recovery who have become ultra athletes. So I, I have to ask the question. I had Charlie Engel on, we talked about, you know, like it's going to come up. So I'm interested. Everybody has a different answer to the question. So how do you Did I trade that? addictions? Yeah. That one? Yeah, yeah, yeah that one. <laughs> you know, I get that one. That's the, the one I get. That's the second most popular with me. The first one is where do you get your protein? Right. Well, yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, first of all, um, as you know, addiction has a huge destructive component to it. You know, you can't be addicted to loving your children. You can't be addicted to, you know, trying to be more spiritual in your life. You can't be addicted to anything that is overall improving the quality of your life and making you a better human being. Can you be addicted to running? Sure. I, I think that's that point is when it, when it transfers over, you know, is, is when mm-hmm. is it becoming destructive? When are you engaging in the behavior compulsively despite all these negative consequences? Um, I tried to switch addictions a million times. In fact, it was my preferred method of trying to find sobriety, mm-hmm. right? I'd go, you know what? I'm going to become an outdoorsman. You know, and I'm going to give up drinking and I'm just going to go fly fishing and I'm going to go camping and I'm going to go to Alaska and, uh-huh. or I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to, I'm, I tried the working out and all that stuff. Or I tried, moving cities, pulling a geographic. I tried running. I tried yeah. to switch my addictions to running and I, I always kind of wanted to be that runner person, you know, I just kind of, it was appealing to me for whatever reason, but as you know, that was that was just changing the symptoms. I'm, I may as well have been trying to switch from beer to wine or from you know whiskey to, right. to cigarettes. I mean, it, it just didn't matter. It wasn't going to work that way. When I finally addressed the spiritual problems, what was causing me to live this way, and once I had to, to tackle some of those issues, I had this tremendous amount of mental energy and time available to me that I could have chosen to do anything with. I could have chosen to write music or poetry or go camping or go running. And that's what I chose. But it was very much after the fact. And that's the only way it would have ever lasted for me. Mm-hmm. Because I, I could go to the gym, you know. How many times have I sat on a, on a piece of equipment at the gym reeking of alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and still smelling like Big Macs because I vomited when I woke up in the morning. And, and that's, that's real. And, and that wasn't going to work. Yeah. It was just never going to work. I have to remain diligent. Uh, uh, in my sobriety to remember that training is not the same thing as as tending to my sobriety. Like going out and riding my bike and running, no matter how long that run is, that does not take the place of actually working a program of recovery because that's what I forget. You Absolutely. know what I mean? I think I'm fine now. Like, and now as I go get my meditation when I'm running, like, no, that's, that's, not, that's not it. That is not the solution. The minute I start to think about that, that is when I start to regress back and move towards that relapse. Start feeling some yeah, of those old behaviors. Hard. Yeah, you know, uh, running, triathlon, all of these things—they can be, you know, they can become addictions. You hear about the the, the Iron Man widow, you know, right. or like, you know, when it starts to be this thing that someone escapes into because they're not happy with their life or they're right. avoiding other things in their life. Then I think you have to have. Uh, you know, hard discussion about what the addictive aspect of it is or, or what it is that you're running away from. But but as Mishka Shubali said on the podcast, he's like, running is hard. Drinking is easy. Yeah, that's, you that's, know? that's profound. He's like, I don't want to get out of bed and go run, you know, but I always want to go to the bar. Right. 
And so I think that's something to think about as well. But I think running is really this platform of self-discovery, you know, and that's that's what I found. And, and from reading your book, I mean, that's clearly, I think, you know, I gather that that's your approach to it. It is very much so. And, and, and I also, you know, I think that we, we were talking earlier about, you know, that, that feeling of being lucky, you know, mm-hmm. that, that why was that moment the moment? And once we arrive at that moment and once I was there and, and I put forth this, this journey of figuring out who I was and, 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 and trying to trust the process and allow myself some time to heal while I was trying to figure these things out, it took a tremendous amount of um, faith and discipline and trust and, and all these other things that, that fit into running nicely. And, mm-hmm. you know, even when I'm in a, a 100-mile race, you know, and there's always going to be a moment for me. I hear other people say, oh, I never wanted to quit. Never was. I'm like, well, good for you, man, because when I'm out there, I want to quit all the time. Mm-hmm. And to be able to access that place where everything is uncomfortable, everything sucks, and there's an easy way out, and you don't take it, is very valuable. And, mm-hmm. it, and it brings me back to that place in my early days of sobriety. And it actually gives me that feeling that, you know, I'm going to be okay as long as I can continue to um, identify those things in myself and realize that I'm not, um, I'm not just a victim of the moment, that right. there is a choice in the moment. What do you think it is about discomfort or, or you know, that willingness to um, you know, go beyond uh, the self-imagined limits of your capabilities that is so important to this idea or this feeling of being alive? You know, I can answer it for me, you know, and, and I think that discomfort in the, um, is a huge part of the addict's problem um, is that, you know, life can be uncomfortable. Just the normal living of life is uncomfortable. We do all kinds of things we don't want to do, you know, whether it's following up with customer calls or, mm-hmm. you know, do, doing things. That's part of life. And the addict has nothing to do with that, right? I'm not going to be uncomfortable in my life. There's no such thing I'm going to use if I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to use if I have a, a second that's, you know, that's available to me. And so I think um, being in that uncomfortable place is a thing that most people are okay with and addicts aren't. Mm-hmm. So I think that for me, it, it appeals to me in that place that, that to, to be not just to be able to deal with discomfort, but to deal with it on a big level, you know, is, is um, empowering in a way. And, and it's an affirmation of, of, of life and of recovery and, and of sobriety. So, yeah, well put, uh, you know, I think that, that, uh, being ultra sensitive to continue to use the word ultra in every context. I know. Possible. I'm sorry. I do that. <laughs> yeah, <I'm, laughs> uh, yeah. I think in general, addicts and alcoholics tend to be people that that not everybody, but I think it's fair to make a generalization that they tend to be sensitive people. And you know, when you're talking about when you were a kid and and being kind of ultra, uh, said it again, um, you know, compassionate towards some other kid that you thought was having a hard time that heightens everything, right? So as you grow older, that becomes more painful or more difficult to bear. And then it's the easy choice to use to numb that. And then you get sober and suddenly you're just, your emotions are charging, you know, firing in all different directions and you have no skills for how to manage that. And you honestly think that these emotional impulses that you're experiencing are going to kill you. You know, it feels like you're going to die. 
No, that's perfect. Absolutely. And so the process of, of getting sober and recovering is learning how to manage your emotions because your coping mechanism gets shut off when you start your drinking career or your using career. And so you've got, you know, whenever you started your, you know, career, 13, whatever it is, yeah. and, and until, you know, 33, yeah. right? 33. So you're a 33-year-old man and you have the emotional maturity of a 13-year-old. Yeah. And then and you're in the world, right? And you have responsibilities and, you know, that leads to panic attacks and freakouts and all sorts of things that, you know, without really having a solid foundation for sobriety, you're going to return to using ultimately. Yeah. I mean, that's the perfect analogy. And, you know, we, we all see those, you know, kids that can't cope and they're throwing tantrums mm-hmm. and they're doing all this. And that's, that's like our behavior. Yeah. That's, that's the yeah, addict exactly. right there. That's a stereotypical addict. I can't mm-hmm. have it my way, you know, and I'm going to freak out and take everybody down with me. Yeah. What I always hear uh, is uh, emotions are just emotions, man. You can feel them and they change and you'll get to the other side of it. They will not kill you. Like, so I have to think like, it's not going to kill me. It's not right. going to kill me, you know? <laughs> and in good. some sense, <laughs> the pain of, of running an ultra is much more tolerable than some of the emotional pain that, that I've experienced. Yeah. Physical pain is, is a lot easier to deal with. And, mm-hmm. and I, think that's, I think that's ultimately what happens in, in ultra is that you have to learn to divide physical pain from mental pain and, or emotional pain because you, you have what's going on in your legs, which is actually kind of the smallest part of it. It's, it's the emotion and the meaning your mind's putting into that. And, and telling you, hey, this could all be over really quick. You're probably injured. You need to sit down and mm-hmm. you need to go on. This was a bad idea, you know, and being able to separate those is exactly like what you said. It's okay. Mm-hmm. You're okay. Mm-hmm. You know, just slow it down, breathe a second, and, and it's going to be all right. It, it, emotions, there's no such thing as an inappropriate emotion, right? It's just inappropriate times to feel them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that was the big thing for me is I never had the emotion and the occasion aligned up to be appropriate. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're always at the wrong moment. Yeah. Why am I experiencing anger here? <laughs> yeah. Well, being able to create that divining line between physical pain and emotional pain, you know, particularly in the context of, of sport or run, running an ultra marathon, I mean, that's the, that's the keys to the kingdom. You know, when you're talking about a 100-mile run, it's, it's, it's not the physical that's going to bury you. It's, it's the mental. Right. I mean, as David Goggins famously said, when you think you're done, you've only accomplished about 40% of what you're truly capable of. So it's all about your mental state, your emotional state, you know, your spiritual connection and whatever form that takes that is either going to carry you across that finish line to some kind of triumphant victory or just bury you. Yeah, my my take on the the cliche, the yogiism about how much of it is mental and how much of it is physical. And, you know, there's, there's a thousand of them out there. Mine is, um, it's all mental, even the physical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll take you, I'll, I'll take it one further. Okay. <laughs> it's all spiritual. Man. All right. There you go. I like that too. You know, cause it's not man, supposed to be anything, right? Well, it's like, look, I'm going to come off like a woo woo new age guy, but the truth is like, it's all spiritual journey. You know, all, all the things that I'm doing, the things that you're doing, we're all born that day that you made that decision to get sober and, and get in the passenger seat. And it's taken you on this remarkable, amazing journey, some of which, you know, you've played a small part through the actions that you've taken. But on some level, you know, 
your this is your this is your path man you know this is your, this is this is your divinely inspired journey that you're on and it's a beautiful thing to see um so when people say to me oh you know what what do you think is your strength and your weakness and you know how do you do these things and all that and i'm like Dude, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I can give the flip answer. You know, sure. I can give the five re- things you can think. What I can do all that, but I'm like, the real truth, like the the honest truth is, I don't know because it's about. Uh, it was. It all began when I threw my arms up and said, "I don't know what I'm doing." Yeah, your strong, your weakest moment was your strongest moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that. That's tough, especially for guys. You know, we're we're you know we're not reared to say I don't know or to say I need help or will you help me or um, you know I'm lost. These are not the characteristics of of the successful man in Western culture. No doubt, man. I mean, it was an absolute the the biggest obstacle that I faced in in trying to what I called you know, get sober. Cause you know, there's, there's, as you know, there's such a big difference between sobriety and recovery and, mm-hmm. and, and not using, you know, not using is, is, is not even remotely related to being sober. You know, you're just not using anymore. And, um, that's where I was, is like, I was almost, wi- I was willing to kind of do the work. If someone would have given me, you know, what, here's what you need to do. I think I was willing to try to do that and make it happen. But what I wasn't willing to do was admit that I wasn't capable of doing the work, <laughs> you know, like, uh-huh. well, I'm a man, I, I can take care of this, you know, I'll, I'll do this, I'll fix this. And, and I, I could never get to the first step because that, that, that was the problem right, right. there. Right. That I Until you could get to that place where you will literally do anything and you will take direction from somebody, even if you think that person is crazy or has no business telling you what to do, because don't you know who, who I think I am? You know, until you can get over that and really destroy the ego to get to that place, you know, it takes it takes destroying the ego to get to that place where you can actually grow. And, it felt and it's so completely good. counterintuitive, but yeah, it's the greatest feeling when you can finally let go of that. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think there's a lesson in there, you know, to you know, competing and stuff like that is that is giving over that control, even when you get to the place where you want to be competitive. I have to accept any possibility in a race. I'm going to accept the two extremes, right? I could win or I could not finish. And once mm-hmm. I'm okay with either scenario, then I can just run. Mm-hmm. I can just be in the moment and run. You're not attached. Yeah. Yeah. That's freedom. Yeah. That's freedom. All right. 320 pounds. Okay. Yeah. We got to <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> so All uh, things being equal, yeah. I used to use a lot more soap. No, you did. <laughs> a lot more of a lot of things, I think, right? Yeah, uh, yeah 320 pounds. I mean, the only other uh, person I've had on the podcast who, who was, you know, pushing the scale at that level was Josh Lajani. And it was fascinating to hear his story of how he finally kind of came to grips with it and, and got on top of it. And, and I saw similarities in your story. And one of the things that, that really struck me actually highlighted it. You said uh, changing your body and losing weight long term is not about willpower. And you go on and then you say you have to change the way you think and change the way you perceive the world, right? So it's not about a diet or some kind of short-term goal. It has to do with like doing the inside work to change your entire kind of orientation about how you're interacting with the environment around you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And 
we started talking about that earlier when I was like, I used to have this weird perception of food and, and what people are. And I would think, you know, like I would see some, you know, fit looking person and they're, you know, eating a salad or something and they're eating some really healthy. And I go, what the hell are you doing, man? You're, mm-hmm. you're thin and fit. You can eat whatever you want. Uh-huh. Why aren't you eating a Big Mac? Uh-huh. <laughs> I had it like totally screwed up in my head. I wasn't thinking, wow, he, that person is healthy and vibrant looking because they eat well. I thought that's just who they are mm. and it has nothing – you know, that was almost a, a byproduct of it and uh, I certainly – Yeah, like if I look like that, I'd eat a Big Mac. That's, like, that's the same <laughs> – but that's the same, that's like saying if, if I wasn't an alcoholic, I'd get drunk I'd every night. You know? Exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I mean it, uh, so much of it is image, right, and, and how mm-hmm. we see ourselves and, and I didn't see myself as someone who needed to lose weight. At that point, I saw myself as a fat person and, mm-hmm. and I was always going to be a fat person. And if, if I was going to not be a fat person, I had to figure out a way to trick my body, you know, or, or trick the universe and trick the world into getting me skinny, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that – But what is it – let's sit there for a minute. Sure. I mean, what is, it, what is it like to be that heavy, you know, just the day in, day out, like, you know, shopping for pants and getting a belt and sitting on an airplane and yeah. standing in line, like just the simple things of navigating a typical day. Yeah, absolutely. The, the airplane's a big one because I used to, you know, I, I was traveling a lot and I would get on a plane and I would walk down the aisle and I could see everybody looking mm-hmm. at me and they're just going, oh, fuck, shit, no, please, please, please no, no, no. And then, you know, someone would lose the lottery and I'd plop down next to them. And, uh-huh. and you know, you need I got extra, like they have that little like thing for the seatbelt with the extender on it. You know, I, I, I did never, I never needed that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I would definitely spill over into the chair next to me, you know, and, and that person would have to twist sideways a little bit. And I was not the type of person who could let something like that go. I would have to joke about it, you know, mm-hmm. so I would. I would start the conversation right. I'm go, oh, you know, what did you do in your past life? You know, sorry, you lost mm-hmm. the lottery today. And, you know, if you'd have waited 10 more minutes, you would have got a different seat on the plane. You know, you shouldn't be in such a hurry, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, but all of that is just like re- reaffirming this like sense that you're a piece of shit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I, I hear that from people all the time. They go, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just this way and I'm happy and, and you know, I, I can't presume to know exactly what another human being is, is really feeling, but I can say, well, I used to say that too, and, and it wasn't true. It wasn't honest. You know, I wasn't happy with, with how I looked. I, I would joke about it. I would talk about it, but I wasn't happy. Well, it's a defense mechanism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I first started losing weight, you know, my, I was wearing size 50 pants with a 30-inch inseam. Mm-hmm. That's, that's as big as it got for me. I had the stretchy waist pants. You know, I had to have the little elastic bands mm-hmm. in them. And, you know, I, size was, became much more of a concern than fashion. You know, just finding things that fit was, you know, hard to Challenge. do. So if I could find something fit that I actually, that fit and I liked the way it looked, that was a bonus. You know, so you end up kind of looking like, you eventually end up looking like a clown, no matter what. Because you're wearing like right. a flannel shirt right, and right, plaid right. pants and, you know, because that's all you could find in your size. So um, I noticed... When I lost the weight, I went and played golf and I hadn't played in a long time. And it was the most strange sensation because when I went to line up a putt, my hands were right up close to my body. Mm-hmm. And it felt so odd because my hands were way out here past right. my belly before when I was, when I was putting. And 
changed it to actually change my my entire golf swing too because I wasn't of course slicing the ball as much. But, sure that, but I digress. Change change more than that, <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, and and at the time, you know, what's it look like? McDonald's, Hardee's, Burger King, Pizza Hut. I mean, what's what's the daily routine? You know, yeah, fast food, lots of fast food. Um, I would towards, you know, my my weight gain and food consumption was really getting worse in the same way that my drinking was. You know, it mm-hmm. was progressing. You know, I, and towards the end, I was eating fast food three or four times a day, and I would go to McDonald's and I'd get two sausage McEggs with, with biscuits, sausage biscuits with egg yeah. and cheese and hash browns, and, and of course a diet coke. And then I, that's <laughs> it's the way it is. I don't want to spike that blood sugar. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't need that extra two hundred calories. <laughs> but you know, and then and then in the uh, the afternoon, I'd go to. You mentioned Arby's. I'd go there a lot, but I'd always get the you know, those potato cake things they have. And I'd get like four of those, mm-hmm. you know, to go along with whatever sandwich I had. And and then that would usually be it because then I'd start drinking. And right. and then the usually the last meal of the day came late, you know, where it was just, you know, just gluttonous. I mean, just, you know, just I'd go get a, a double quarter pounder with cheese, a filet of fish, french fries. And those french fries would come back the next day, like in whole french fry pieces, like not even. <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the way that would work for me is I, uh, you know, I didn't want to eat because that would interfere with the buzz. Yeah. So I would go as long as I could without eating when I was drinking because I didn't want that in my stomach because that would make me feel tired or it would, you know, take longer to get drunk. And inevitably at the end of the night, you're starving. Yep. So you do this massive binge and I would wake up, you know, I just wake up with, you know, a pizza box, you know, open on my bed and like Big Mac wrappers and my yep. sheets and just, it's just the worst. Terrible. You can, so I can almost smell it's, it. I, yeah. It's yeah. really pathetic. But that's why they invented like 100 proof schnapps. So if, you're, <laughs> if your stomach was really full and it's dessert like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's peppermint. Oh, maybe I should go back and start uh. drinking and try that. <laughs> So, all right, so so you're getting sober and you're realizing, like, I got to – now this is the next thing that I have to address. And, and, and you take a very interesting kind of approach. I mean, first you try all these diets, Mediterranean diets, whatever it is, all, all of them. And then you kind of, you know, flick the switch and say, I'm going to put my scientific hat on because you have yeah. this background um, and approach it from a different perspective. So, you know, walk me through that. Yeah, so the main thing I was cognizant of – was behaviorally that whatever the process I used to get me to where I wanted to be had to be sustainable, you know, and and I knew I was never going to be able to eat all protein for the rest of my life, you Mm -hmm. know, or I was never going to be able to restrict my calories for the rest of my life. And you, cause you'd, you'd lost weight and gained a back, you'd, you'd done the yo-yo thing. Bunch of times. I lost 50 pounds at least eight or nine times, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'd always do it on some crazy, you know, diet. And, and usually it would, you know, come undone because number one, I didn't want to just, you know, keep eating that way. And number two, I wasn't drinking and that wasn't going to last very long, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I figured, um, I had to figure out a way to have a healthy relationship with food and I had to eat. And that was really difficult because I totally linked up losing weight with not eating, obviously, mm-hmm. or, or just eating or eating in some extreme way to, to trick my body. Like the, the Atkins thing is 100% protein is what I use like the last five or six times. Right. You know, 
And and it's funny because which is very effective at losing weight, but yeah. you know people have a lo- have a hard time staying on it. Oh, absolutely. And, and and I talk a lot about weight loss now. And whenever I have a, a group in front of me, I say, how many how many people have been on a successful diet? And, and people raise their hand. And I'm like, good, keep it up there. So your idea of a successful diet, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight. Because like, if it's not, you should put your hand down. Right. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but, but just it, the word diet alone uh, sort of infers temporary. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I changed the way that, that I ate. And, um, you know, the glycemic index to me um, made a lot of sense um, just because I knew that there was a way that food was affecting my body outside of just calories in and calories out. I knew mm-hmm. that there was something bigger in play. And, you know, we used to, I think, you know, in, in 50, 100 years ago, whatever, or, or longer – that the way that you would be overweight is is by being gluttonous, right? I mean, you had to just eat all the time. And certainly I was guilty of that. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like there was so much more in play now with the, with the types of foods that we have that are that are causing, you know, us to to crave things that we wouldn't normally crave and, and that we're just kind of in this this cycle, you know, this this that our biology wasn't working for us. We were kind of working against us. Mm-hmm. And so um, I became a, a real student of the glycemic index and, and how my blood sugar was, was affected. And, and I became an absolute stickler on it. And, I mean, I wouldn't have anything with sugar in it at all. And just to paint the, the complete picture, I mean, when you were tipping the scales at 320, yeah. not only were you overweight, you had a heart condition, you had extremely high blood pressure, and you had been diagnosed with diabetes, right? So yeah. this is not just fat guy. This is like sick fat guy. Yeah, no, when, when they took my, the last time I was at the doctor and, and my blood pressure was so high and I wish I could remember the numbers. I'll have to, I'll have to go back and mm-hmm. get them, but there was a two in there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but they didn't want me to leave the, the doctor's office. I mean, they were like, you're going to have a stroke. I'm not telling you, you might have a stroke. You are going to have a stroke. You know, mm-hmm. it could be in three minutes. You know, mm-hmm. you need to be on medication. You need to be on now. And I didn't like that, you know. So I, I, I never – and my, my reasoning was I never went on, on medication because I had read that medication is unhealthy. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be on that blood pressure medication. Yeah. Man, that shit will kill you. Your brain. You're still <laughs> perceiving the world through a warped brain I yep, think, at this point. Absolutely. So, of course, I you left you, there. The, the smart thing would have been <laughs> – I'm on that medication right now. I'm going to work my way off it, but let's not have a stroke in three minutes. Yeah, I was not capable of the smart yeah. thing. In fact, I had to go to, I was, I was meeting my friend at the bar, and that's uh-huh. a fact. I, I had someone, my buddy Dan was waiting for me at the bar while I was at the doctor's You're like, office. Yeah, I can't hang out in so, the doctor's office. Yeah, and of course, I told him. To be done. Yeah, we sat and laughed about it and, you know, drank ourselves silly. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I was really, really unhealthy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I, I became a, a science or a student of the uh, the glycemic index, and that was kind of the the end all be all for me while I was losing weight. And it was like everything else, a progression, you know, that eventually led me to adopting a plant based diet and all that. But mm-hmm. during those initial stages, it was really no sugar, no breads, no processed foods, um, and I just I, I went into it with that mentality that my body's going to heal, you know, and, mm-hmm. I, and I need to give it time to do that. That. I'm going to trust that this is kind of part of the same process I was on with alcohol, that I was sick and unhealthy, and as time went by, I was going to get better. And, and I looked at food being the same way, that I crave all these things that are killing me, 
And if I just give it enough time that, that I'm not going to crave those things anymore and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to get to a, a better place and I'm not going to be in war with myself the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the analogy with, there's a couple analogies with, with Josh's, Josh Lajani's message and, and that is this place that you came to that he also came to, which was, I'm not doing this, I'm taking my focus off the scale, I'm taking my focus off of losing weight I'm looking at this from a perspective of how can I be healthy and how can I be an athlete? And there's this thing in the book where, you, where somebody says, well, if you're trained for ultra marathons, who cares what you eat, right? But you're saying, I want to be a healthy human being. And that's very different from, I want a slimmer waistline. Yeah, well, and I mean, there's a big difference between a slim waistline and even health and even fitness. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's no shortage of people out there now who are extremely fit, but they're not healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they eat poorly and they, they have high cholesterol and they have high blood pressures and other things, but they can run, you know, five and a half minute miles. And mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. usually work that way, you know, but um, usually if you're taking that much time to train your body, you're, you're, you're trying to treat yourself right. But mm-hmm. we know that they're, they're, they're not, uh, you know, mutually exclusive. Right. So, so you adopt this approach and, and so what happens? Like how long before, you know, you're, you get to a place where your blood pressure starts to normalize and the weight's coming off? Like walk me through the evolution a little bit. So I, I logged every workout that I've ever had since I was started at 320 mm-hmm. pounds. Like, and I have these notebooks, these little day planners where I was writing down my, my calories in there. And typically what I'd have is I, I, was, I was eating um, a carbohydrate-restricted diet but I was, I just, I said that I could eat as many carbohydrates as I wanted as long as they came from vegetables, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, but I wasn't having any starches or anything like that. And I wrote down everything in, in the little, the little journal, um, on each day and I was weighing myself religiously. And so no rice, no potatoes, nope. no fruit. Um, no. I didn't really restrict fruit, but I was, I was avoiding it, um, mm-hmm. at times, you know, but if I wanted it, I needed it. I, I had it. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was on a healthy list. You know, what about healthy. potatoes? Sweet potatoes, regular. Sweet potatoes, I would have for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I, it all boiled down to the glycemic index. So I kind of had this this um, this pass or fail grade. You know, it's like uh, I think it was fifty. If something was higher, you mm-hmm. know, than a fifty on the glycemic index, I, I wouldn't have it. And and if it and if it was close to that fifty, it would be something I wouldn't have very often. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the, the lower down the spectrum they went, um, you know, interesting. The, and but you're still eating meat and dairy at this point. I was, yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you know, as as weight does, my weight started, you know, bouncing around a lot. You know, I'd, I'd lose. You know, when you've been out of shape and you're drinking a lot and you're just living so horribly, you're going to see a dramatic result at first. And, right. and I was no exception. I, I want to say I lost forty pounds the first month. You know, in one month. In one month. Wow. And then it leveled so, off. So, but that's like. 80%, 90% booze, right? Right. Well, and, and the bad decisions that come with booze, like all the late night McDonald's and all that kind yeah. of stuff, right? But interestingly, um, and actually I need to back up one quick second because um, for the first couple weeks after I stopped and maybe even 30 days after I stopped drinking, um, I was eating really terribly still. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just quit drinking and that was, that was enough. Yeah. That was enough. I hear you. And in fact, um, in my hotel room um, – I looked at my refrigerator one day and I just started laughing because it was like pop tarts and the little chocolate covered donuts and frosted flakes and <laughs> every Wonder Bread. I bought a uh-huh. loaf of fucking Wonder Bread. I had a Wonder Bread since I was like eight years old, uh-huh. but I was just craving you little, sugar. Yeah, you need like a little comfort. Yeah, you know? I was definitely. You just broke up with your best friend. So. Absolutely, my my abusive marriage mm-hmm. came to an end, but I still missed my partner. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
so then I then I kind of I was in that place where I'm like, okay, I need to address these these things together. Um, but I stopped weighing myself because I was that old addict brain, you know, and I was just trying to control that number and it wouldn't listen to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it kept sending me back into that that place. And, you know, you know what addiction feels like. And it felt like that. You know, it felt like that ugly place to me again where I was obsessing mm. about it and I was thinking about it all the time. And I was so I just had to let it go and and I eventually thought, you know, I'm in this for health. I'm in this because I want to live. And if I ultimately can do the things I want to do and I can look the way I want to look and feel the way I want to feel, I don't care if that number ever changes. If it stays 320, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. So I started- Another surrender. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute. Total, complete surrender. And and it was, once again, very empowering to me. And it gave me a, 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 a new focus. And, and it allowed me to put more energy into what I was doing instead of less. And- um, I still threw the measurements on occasionally to just make sure everything was moving in the right direction because there's mm-hmm. not that emotional component to a measurement, right? Mm-hmm. If I see a, a movement, and this is what I try to do with people that I help lose weight, is go with the, the emotion, the scale, man. If you, if you want four pounds of weight loss and you get three, it's a failure. Mm-hmm. But if, the, if your measurements go down an eighth of an inch, it's success because mm-hmm. you know, there's not that emotional part to it. So, And I could obviously see my, my clothes changing and, and, and I was feeling better and then I just, um, just kept going. Mm-hmm. And so how does it continue to evolve? You have this, you know, it's pretty rigorous kind of glycemic index approach. And then how did it kind of morph over time into what you do now? So... Um, I was becoming fitter and fitter. Um, I, I decided I was going to run a marathon somewhere mm-hmm. along the way. Um, I did a 5K, which was the scariest thing that ever happened to me in my right. life. Right, and, and <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, this is not an overnight thing. You know, this is, this is running for 15 seconds oh, yeah. because that's all you could do. And, yeah. and that description of the little bump on the sidewalk that, you know, elevated the sidewalk, you know, a foot, you know, was, was the big terror. It was, man. I could see <laughs> that thing coming, man. It was like an eighth of a mile loop around the park and I yeah. could just feel the weight of that 10 foot rise coming mm-hmm. like it was Hope Pass, you know. But what was it that, that you think clicked in you that said, running or you know i have this dream of running a marathon like why running why not i mean what was it do you is there anything specific that you think made you gravitate towards that as this litmus test for growth yeah yeah it seemed impossible i mean and i really think that was it and you know i i think that i think all human beings to a certain extent kind of have that that thing that will rise to the occasion you know, and I felt like if something didn't seem impossible, it didn't seem like it was worth doing. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted it to be big and I wanted it to be meaningful. You know, I wanted it to be something something worthy of creating a whole new life. And and um, I don't know. It was running. And, and I, I do firmly believe that it, it could have been something else, you know, mm-hmm. as, as long as it had those same components to it. But the, it, state, the emotional stakes had to be high, yeah. very high to get you out of bed and to really kind of um, – be powerful enough for you to really restructure how you were living your day every day. Yeah, and and because I'd tried to do it in the past and I couldn't, it almost became um, this thing where, you know, when I ran the first time for twenty minutes nonstop, I mean that seemed like a really big success, you know, and and you know, kind of um, 
you know, proof that uh, things were going in the right direction, that I wasn't just spinning my wheels, mm-hmm. even though I was running on a treadmill. So mm-hmm. technically, I was exactly spinning my wheels. Mm-hmm. But right. <laughs> so, uh, so from that first, you know, 15-second run and panting to the first marathon, how long are we talking? Um, August of 2005 to October of 2006. Mm-hmm. So, so a little over a year, a little yeah, over a year. So, a year. but that's a that was a very focused year. It was. And when you ran that first fifteen seconds, what were you weighing then? Three twenty. Three twenty. Yeah. And at your first marathon, what were you clocking in? One eighty. One eighty. And it was very Which important. Is still twenty pounds heavier than where you ended up at Badwater. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was really important to me. And, you know, we're all on a, our own journey. You know, and everyone has their own their own kind of thing they're trying to do. But for me, it was really important that I approached the marathon, I wanted to be a runner when I got there and I wanted to run it. I didn't need to run it really fast, you know, but I wanted it to be my victory lap. So I wanted to achieve all of my weight loss goals and my health and fitness goals along the way. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want it, like the old me would have just been like, okay, what's the minimum amount I can do and still get this finisher's medal? You know what I mean? And, And can I fake it? Can I walk it? Can I get through it? And yeah, because that's about saying you did it as yeah. opposed to really embracing the experience and, and what it actually means to tackle that and give it your best go. Absolutely. I didn't want to run a marathon. I wanted to be the type of person that could run marathons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's – say that again. That's an important distinction. I didn't want to run a marathon. I wanted to be the type of person who can run marathons. To be a runner, yeah. not somebody who did a marathon. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That was, that was a really big, really big part of the journey for me. And, and it kept me motivated and it kept me going out there. And um, I did the 5K. I was, it was when you, well, hold on a second. No, 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 All right. So <laughs> when you're 320 and you have this idea that you're going to run a marathon, I mean, how long before you said, said those words out loud to another human being? It didn't take too long before I started <laughs> saying it. <laughs> yeah. So what's the reaction you're getting? Oh, they would look look me up and down and Yeah, like, and, all right, buddy. Yeah. Okay, right. Dave. You ready yeah. to go back to Arby's? Yeah, I remember uh-huh. I remember last time you said you were never gonna drink again, too. You know? <laughs> Seriously. Uh-huh. But you know, I think insanity is an amazing tool. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave me the the uh, tagline for this episode. R R P episode whatever. You know? <laughs> David Clark. I think insanity is an amazing tool. It is because it can create leverage to mm-hmm. produce anything you want, right? You know, and you got to be afraid of the person that's too crazy to to know better, right? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't mind. I was just like, you know what? Screw it. You know, go ahead, laugh. You know, and I went and I had these little silicone bracelets made up that said 26.2 mm-hmm. and I just thought that was like really archaic like and, and obscure and, and like no one would know what it meant or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so original right <laughs> and um, you know and, and that was what it what is that mysterious number what is that number <laughs> I feel like oh, what? it's the same number in that like white oval <laughs> sticker on the back right. of every car that you see <laughs> I know and I uh, still lived in Colorado at the time <laughs> right 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 <laughs> but yeah um so I decided I was a runner, and, and I, I wasn't going to let uh, reality get in, get in the way get of that. Get in the way of that, yeah. that you redefined yourself. I mean, that is you know, a transformation, a mental and emotional transformation that precedes the physical transformation, yeah. right? Like you stepped into this identity before it, it had been manifest and assumed the role. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a, a big thing. And um, I think we 
we pigeonhole ourselves and, and we create these images of who we are and rarely are they based in, in facts. They're just emotional attachments that we made, you know, somewhere along the way in childhood, we were, we were told you were the smart one or, or you were the stubborn one or, mm-hmm. or you were the fat one or whatever it is. And, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's really important, I think, for human beings to be in a place where how you view yourself and who you are matches with what you're doing. And, and I think I talk a little bit about it in the book that we create this conflict. And, and with, the, with the addict me, whenever I tried to stop drinking, that was my behavior. I was trying to not drink, but I knew I was a drinker. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't going to ever last very long, you know, because I was at battle with myself. And I had to look at myself as someone who wouldn't dream of drinking alcohol, who would never consume, you know, r- recklessly and, and destroy myself like that. And once I did that and addressed that, that spiritual part of that and was able to get myself to buy into that, then the behavior changed a little more naturally. And but what is the process of changing that identity Insanity. from saying, yeah, because you're saying, you know, going from knowing you're an alcoholic to saying, not saying, but but believing I am somebody that doesn't drink or I am somebody who, I am a runner, I am somebody who runs marathons. Like, what is the process of that? Because I think, you know, listen, the truth is most people who are alcoholics don't get sober and most people that weigh 320 pounds don't lose 160 pounds. So what is it that was different about you and how, you know, how did you kind of create that, you know, create that new path for yourself? I mean, I guess I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for you to be able to articulate the process a little bit for somebody who's out there who's like, please tell me how you did this. Yeah. And and I was joking about it when I Mm -hmm. said the insanity thing, but there's actually a modicum of truth to that. And you have to, I had to drink the Kool-Aid. Right. Yeah, you had to believe it. Yeah. It's not about like looking in the mirror and saying, you know, trying to convince yourself of something you actually don't believe. Right. So that meant moving forward. Once I decided that I believe that, I had to only engage Act in accordingly. thoughts and behaviors mm-hmm. that supported that view of who I was. And anything that would come up, because all kinds of things would come up to tell, show me and prove mm-hmm. to me on a daily basis that I wasn't that person. I'd be like... I've always been that person. I'm just off track now. I'm getting back to where I'm supposed to be. This was, this was who I was supposed to be all along, and I screwed it up. And so I think, you know, there's so much information that comes into our, our daily lives, and, you know, we can't we, – we tend to grab onto the things that support our predetermined ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's like, oh, that guy's a jerk. That guy can do something really nice, and you're going to go, yeah, but that's not real. He's an asshole. I know Mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing, I think, with our behaviors. And and there's a big difference between being someone who needs to lose weight and someone who's a fat person. And so I started deleting all of the information that came my way that supported that I was supposed to be overweight, that I was – you know, supposed to be an addict, that it was just genetically wired into my DNA sometime. I was like, bullshit. I'm not even going to entertain that idea, store it throw it away. And I would shift my direction over to something else. I would, you know, take a physical action, like getting online and looking up marathons and reading Mm -hmm. about marathon training plans and and reading about running shoes and, or just go for a run, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's no greater way to prove to yourself you're a runner than going for a run, (laughs) you know? So, Uh and, and I would do that. And it's like, everything became an affirmation. It's like, okay, this is it. This is, this is real. Mm -hmm. And, and I believe, but I would imagine it starts with a little fake it till you make it. Like, Damn right. What, what would a runner do? Well, I don't know. A yes. runner would probably go running. 
Yeah. You know, a runner would probably go on a website and yeah. try to learn something about running shoes. Yeah. You have to be willing to be a little stupid, you know, mm-hmm. and a little crazy at first. And, and it's hard. And you'll try to talk yourself out of it. I certainly did, you know. Yeah, but there had to be those moments where you're kidding you know, yourself. You're like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just, I figured, you know, that I wasn't a 320 pound alcoholic addict by accident, right? And, and it was all of the crap that I put in myself that, that got me there. So it was that surrender thing. It was like, it's really easy for me to say, I don't have it all figured out. You know, I don't know. If I did, I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say that this is, this is the way it is, and, and I have no proof otherwise because I don't have anything figured out anyway. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And did you try to surround yourself with a community of people that could teach you and support this dream, or, or are yeah. you going lone wolf on this? Um, at first, I was very much alone. Um, I think the first outward action I took um, into the running community was was going to a running store in Boulder, and mm-hmm. um, which could be an incredibly intimidating. It was thing. it was really intimidating, and and it was really hard. I, I sat out in front of the store for a long time, and you know, it was like it's it was a little better buying my shoes at you know the, the sports. Yeah, store. you go to Sports Chalet or something yeah. where you know it's a that's, more anonymous. That's easier, right? Yeah, uh-huh. but you know. Again, it was like all those things. I was like, you know, the old me would have just left and gone somewhere else. You know, I'm going to do things differently now. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going right. to go in here and, and real, I'm not only a real g- runner is going to go to the real running store and yeah. is going to ask the the real questions. Yeah, and and not only am I going to go in, I'm going to just tell them who I am and why I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not even going to candy coat it. You know, I'm like, hey, you know, I've lost sixty pounds and I want to run a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's almost like daring them to to you know laugh or scoff you (laughs) know it's like this is it how'd that go you know it was they were incredibly supportive you know and then now i know that you know it's a great community of people um Mm -hmm. but uh yeah um they were incredibly supportive he asked me questions about you know what speeds i was running at and and you know how many miles i was doing and and I shared all of that willingly, and and he was very encouraging and mm-hmm. thought said you know hey you did a great job and you know good for you and that was that was important for me because it was an affirmation that I hadn't gotten right you know, before so right. I, I think he's, it was very he's looking at you like you mean business he's yeah. not questioning you yeah so it's another little like notch you know and it's interesting that once once it came full circle and you know I'd done the marathon. Mm-hmm. And then I was I was getting involved more in the running community and doing more group runs with people and things like that. Um, I never hid my story, you know, ever. Um, but I didn't willingly share it. And I think, you know, you talk about part of the process. You know, there was, there was a growing process along the way. In that first two years, I was kind of fumbling my way through my sobriety. I was fumbling my way through the weight loss. I was fumbling my way through everything. And I, and I hadn't really put it together yet. I was certainly better than I, I was before. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought somehow if I shared where I'd come from, that people would think less of me. They wouldn't mm-hmm. accept me as a real runner. You know? So that was like that last little bit that was, that was holding on. Interesting. Yeah. And the, iron, the great irony is that the story's so powerful. And it's a journey towards willingness, another level of willingness and surrender to be vulnerable enough to share the story. Yeah, because I felt like I worked to get to a certain place and I didn't want anything to detract from it. And, right. And I felt like, that ego I don't want coming people, in. Yeah, I don't want people yeah. to see me as that other guy because yeah. I worked so hard to be this new guy. 
That's yeah. that's in the past. Um, so so when you sit down to write the book, I would imagine you might have been you know struggling or, or grappling with a little resistance, you know, when it comes to filling in the gaps and, and, and really fleshing out the details of, of your story. I mean, I know I experienced that when I was writing my book, but I also was very aware that that was the only thing that was going to make the book work was whether I was willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a, um, a test, if you will, of, you know, how, how much you're willing to put yourself out there. I mean, there's mm. so much went into that title, you know, Yeah. <laughs> from just the crazy part of just, you know, you're out there to putting yourself out there mm-hmm. to, as you know, what we call people who are still out there struggling. Mm-hmm. Say they're out there. But it was, it was the most incredible journey of self-discovery that I've ever been on. Mm-hmm. And I, I still, I've been asked a couple of times if I, if I do a little book event or something, I'll say, you want to read something from it? And I, I'm no, I, yeah. I can't, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I can't. And, um, it was just times where I was literally laughing out loud while I was writing it, and other times I was just bawling and crying, and I'd have to walk outside and um, pray and thank God that I made it out, mm-hmm. you know. And because when you when you relive something, as you know from the writing process, it's I just couldn't believe the amount of emotion and detail that would come back mm-hmm. when I sat down and started to write. Yeah, you start remembering stuff that you know, you forgot about or, or it just comes back in technicolor. Yeah. And it's not always welcome. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. But, you know, there were, there were certainly times where I was like, this is just too much, you know, and, you know, I really wasn't sure until, till probably, I'm not even sure when the, the exact moment I was 100% sure I was going to actually like release it or publish it or anything like that. I, mm-hmm. I knew I had to write it for, for me. And then I figured, hey, I knew my mom would buy one, you know. <laughs> like, I couldn't imagine anyone want to read my crap, you yeah. know. But I was like, if, if someone does, then that's just a bonus. Well, when you, when you make that decision, though, you're like, all right, you know. It's, it's a scary thing. You know, it's a scary thing. And I, and I, you know, when I was writing the Drunkalog part of my book, listen, you know, I could, like yourself, I could tell stories all day long. And I have a lot of, you know, I have plenty of stories that are a lot worse that are in the book, but it's like, what is the purpose of this book? Like, you know, I need to establish that this is my past, but, but you also, you can, you can attach your ego to those stories. Like, look how crazy I was, you know? And it's like, it's not about that. You know, it's not, it's not for shock value. It's like, okay, I need to People need to understand that this is the place that I'm coming from, but you know, I didn't want I didn't want to freak people out either. Like you can go too far with it. No doubt, you have to find that balance. For me, I went after the stories that I had the most humiliation attached to because mm-hmm. they're the ones I didn't want to share. Because there's the ones you're talking about, the ones that you mm-hmm. talk about with your buddies, and that are that are kind of kind of funny. Kind of you know, you laugh about them, and and you know, they're the, the crazy rock star kind of stuff, but. You know, I didn't want, like you said, I didn't want to glamorize it. And um, I figured, yeah, well, I'll share the rom- ones that It would- can be like romanticized. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But sitting on a park bench and shitting yourself in LA is not That's not, not so romantic. romantic. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the thing about it, though, is by making that decision to say, okay, it's out there. I mean, that's freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You feel that, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. If... Yeah, I've, I've told this to some friends, like, if you ever want to experience true freedom, you write down every piece of shit moment you've had and put it out there for the world. <laughs> yeah. and, and you will you experience... You want to feel like you're walking through Times Square naked. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's what it's like. 
Yeah. But, and there's such a difference between, you know, telling your friends or even a group of a hundred people, some of your personal things and actually putting it in print Mm -hmm. where people can reread it and pick it apart and Mm -hmm. analyze it. And, but I, and criticize it and criticize it. And that's, was my kind of, um, deal with myself or whatever. It's like, once the book is done and once it's actually published, it's not mine anymore. Mm -hmm. And anything that anyone wants to think about it, want to, how they want to interpret it is up to them. They bought the book, they read it, they have their right to what they feel about it. It's, it's, it's theirs now. Yeah. And part of the deal also is criticize away. Sure. But if one person out there reads it and gets sober, like it's all worth it. Or one person out there, you know, changes their diet and does something that they didn't think that they could do, then that's, that's great. Yeah. Because that's what it's about. They just stop giving up on themselves. Yeah, and I have no doubt that that is the impact of this book. Oh, thank you. Whether you've experienced it directly or not yet, you will. How long, how long is it? When did it come out? It's been out for two months now. Okay, so brand new. Yeah. It's just it's, starting for you, man. You know, it's, it's been um, more than I could have ever imagined so far, and it's mm-hmm. just starting, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with it comes, I think, a little mantle of responsibility now because you kind of carry this inspiration torch, you know, and people are going to look to you and say, how did you do it? Help me. You know, help. Can you can you help me? And 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 you're going to find yourself in this position where people are going to be, you know, wanting you to guide guide them. I mean, have you started to experience that? You know, I I have. And I mean, I know you're training and coaching people and and all of that, so you're you're already engaged in that professionally. But just sort of the emails will come in and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm always thankful for those emails. Um, mm-hmm. But it is tough. It is tough because, you know, you don't always have the the piece of advice that people people want. You know, and I'm never going to tell someone what I think they want to hear. I spent mm-hmm. my whole life doing that kind of shit, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to let the truth light the way. You know, some sometimes the truth just demands to be said. So right, you know, because I, I, you're right. Like a lot of people, you know, they have these passive passive aggressive reach out for help kind of thing. And I did it. You know, I, I remember I called an AA meeting one time and I was like, you know, when is your next meeting? And they're like, I don't know. Let me find someone who knows and this and that. And I was like, you know, you should be ready to take someone's fucking call when they call, you know, and I hung up and now they, they were just laughing their ass off at me. You know, they're like, yeah. look at this drunk, you know? Uh-huh. But I think a lot of people do that. They'll reach out and they expect you to be able to, you know, like make something happen. It's like, I'll share with you every corner of my soul and everything that I've ever been through, but that's all I can do. I don't have any mm. secret pieces of wisdom. No, it's, for the it, it's, it's on them to actually, you know, take what's in the book or what's out there and actually implement it into their lives. And yeah. that's, that's the hard piece, yeah. right? Um, I mean, looking back, you know, put yourself back at 320 pounds at the end of your drinking career and, and, and just imagine that you would be somebody who had not only run Badwater, done all these crazy races that you've done, have written this book, you know, be a source of inspiration to other people, be actually, you know, coaching and training other people. I mean, is that, could you have possibly imagined that? No. Well, I don't know. No. 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 I mean, where did you, you know, it, it, what, it, what would have your, what would your dream have been? Like you know, what was the farthest I could see? Like where, yeah, like where did you, you know, what were you aspiring to? 
I wanted to run the New York City Marathon one day. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, and and it's funny because like I remembered seeing the Ironman triathlon when I was a kid, and I couldn't quite get to the point where I could ever see myself doing that. But I had this idea like, I wonder if I could train for it, mm-hmm. like not actually do it, but could I just train for do it? The train. Could I just? <laughs> could I just like? Like what a weird thought though. Yeah, yeah. Right, what do you think that's about? Like doing the race would actually mean that you would be accountable to other people or? I just don't think that I could put it out there. I, I, I think that I saw that as a, a certain type of person that could do that and I wasn't that person, but maybe mm-hmm. I could be the type of person who might be able to train for it. Yeah, interesting. All right, so you get the marathon done and then where does the idea of like taking it to the ultra level start to creep into the consciousness? I read Dean's book. And actually, before that, even right after I finished the marathon, my my ex-wife, I was sitting there. I was still like, still jacked up, you know, walking downstairs backwards and and stuff. And I I don't think I'd taken my blue Denver Marathon hoodie off yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was like thirty days before I stopped wearing that every single day. And my ex came down and said, "Oh yeah, there's this guy. He ran fifty marathons in fifty states in fifty days." And I was like, "No, he didn't." <laughs> I mean, I didn't even hesitate. I was like, or no, you're he like, d- are you trying to make me feel like shit? I was like, "No, like, he I did just not." Ran a marathon, like, <laughs> like you read yeah. that wrong. There's yeah. no way. And and I just remember being just like, there wasn't anything more insane someone could have said. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like, I don't even know. I don't even know how to respond to that. You know, so I, I like Googled Dean Carnassus and and I I read Ultra Marathon Man and I saw Running on the Sun and mm-hmm. Running on the Sun just man I don't know it's a documentary about bad water oh for yeah people sorry. that don't know yeah can can you is it online can people yeah I think it's still uh, out there um, if it is I'll find a link I'll put it in the show notes yeah sorry about that but uh, no go ahead yeah it it um, man it just it really it really touched something. Like that scared me. It scared me because mm-hmm. I thought that um, I was probably going to want to do that one day, mm-hmm. and that scared the ever- shit out of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that seed was planted. It really that was documentary in Pi Dean's book. Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, about that, I talk about full circle and just you know, my life is just you know tipped so far the other direction that I mean, I'm just I can't even believe you know, what my life is today. And I saw Marshall Ulrich on that, that film and he mm-hmm. wrote the forward for my book. And I met Marshall out at Badwater when I did it. And it was just so insane. You know, like I was like, my life is, I have the most bizarre <laughs> life mm-hmm. in the world. You know, it just seemed, I mean, it, it's, it really does feel like, you know, I actually put it out there on a Facebook post the other day. I was like, you ever just realize you're absolutely 100% living your dream life? Mm-hmm. And that's the way I feel. I feel it's just... I felt that yesterday when I was sitting up in Dean Harnaz's house doing a podcast with him. And he's talking to me and I'm looking at him and I'm not hearing anything that he's saying because I'm just thinking, what am I doing here? You just described how the did, first five minutes of yeah. this show. <laughs> Like for me, how did my life get to this point where I'm sitting here having a conversation with this guy? Like it just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks and in a beautiful way. Yeah. You know, it's a heavy way too. Mm -hmm. Like you said, there's a certain amount of responsibility that comes with, but it did not happen because I, 
I plotted it out, oh, right. or I made some goal and said I'm going to do this. Like there, it's just there's just no way. No, you know, there's no way left to my own devices that it happens. No, no, you'd screw it up. Oh, for sure, <laughs> big time. You know, I'm trying to derail it every day. <laughs> <Right>. You know, <laughs> so you see this movie and uh, and and you read Dean's book. You know, the, the movie is about just how insane this bad water race is. The seed's planted. And this is 2007? Yeah. Um, no, 2006. 2006 still, right? Yeah. And, uh, and your first bad water is 2013. Yep. So we're talking about a seven-year span here during which period of time you run the Leadville 100 twice. And, yes. And a bunch of other crazy stuff too. Yeah, so... So you're creating this, you know, it's not... The narrative, the easy narrative is, you know, 320 pounds to bad water, you know, right. that'll probably be the title of my blog post. But, but, <laughs> um, we can have a <laughs> subtitle. I know because, it, well, that's like, you know, it's, it sounds so crazy dramatic and, and it is, but we're talking about many years of, of brick by brick, a lot of miles. Yeah, I I had never really exercised any level of patience in my past life. So I've been trying, you know, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do the same thing and just say, just like with the marathon, I didn't want to go, okay, well, how can I go fake bad water? You know, I, I didn't even know that you couldn't fake bad water. That was really they hard just to get in it. They won't <laughs> let you fake it. Yeah. Right. They'll weed you out. How much is race day registration? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then reading about, Dean's book and just reading about such a thing as an ultra marathon, mm-hmm. I found out that the Leadville 100 was right in my backyard, mm-hmm. and it just seemed kind of um, kind of shitty to get on a plane and fly somewhere else to do an ultra when you have one of the most iconic ones right in your backyard. Right. So, and in certain respects, maybe even I mean harder in a different way with that crazy elevation and yeah, thin, thin air and everything else. I mean, what was that? What was that first Leadville like? It was, you know. When I wrote the book, um, the, the finish line of my first Leadville was the finish line of the book. And, mm-hmm. and I actually, um, I had to, it was a huge process of, um, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. But, but um, Badwater or uh, Leadville, my first Leadville finish was really the, the true birth of me as, as a runner. Mm-hmm. Um, not that anything else I did before wasn't, you know, running, but it was that moment that I really accepted that I wasn't going to dismiss anything that I'd ever done or that I, that I did and that I wasn't going to live that life anymore. But because up to that point, like I, I did the marathon and I was like, okay, what's next? Mm-hmm. And then I did, you know, started doing triathlon, like, okay, what's next? And I was, I was still searching. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think I stopped searching at that point. Um, I just, I decided that I'd, I was here and then I just needed to be here as much as I could. I needed to be in that moment and, mm-hmm. and, and be. And just own it. Yeah. Well, in a tangible way, I mean, you went from running a marathon, which is something that hundreds of thousands of people have done, to running Leadville, which very, very few people have done or are capable of doing. And the process of getting – thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the process of getting there was, was – um, it was wrought with lots of complications along the way, including mm-hmm. uh, back surgery and yeah. You have the two herniated discs. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. You know, we don't want to have too many spoiler right. alerts. 
Yeah. But there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ups and downs. You, you're going to have to read the book. Yeah. We could be here for eight hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I could. I could talk to you forever. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I could, yeah. This is another example of how cool my life is. Right <laughs> it's cool. Listen, it's cool for me. You know, this is, this is awesome. I'm fascinated. So, uh, so, but walk me through the Leadville. I mean, like, sure. you know, paint the picture of just how difficult that race is. Well, training for the race was, was more difficult than I had imagined. And mm-hmm. in fact, it, it smacked me down and humbled me in a, in a big, huge way. And, and there presented a, a moment where I was either going to walk away and just go back to doing triathlons or I was going to, you know, step up and, and do some things differently. And um, it's where I got serious, the next level of serious, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I changed my diet. That's when I adopted the plant-based diet. Um, I went from 180 to 160. Um, what was the decision that, that drove that? A dare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much uh-huh. a 30-day challenge by a friend. Uh-huh. And I was like, you know, and at that point I was eating really clean. I mean, I, I ate, you know, fruits, vegetables, lean, lean meats. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really didn't eat much other than that. I mean, I had my occasional thing. I would, you know, have a treat here and there. But, I mean, 90% of my diet was, was what most people would call super clean. Right. So and, tra- and training a ton and you just kind of stabilized at 180. Yeah. I'd been there for a few years and, mm-hmm. and I felt fit and able to do, you know, big runs and, and things like that. I'd done some 50 milers and stuff like that. But, um, and then a dare, like what, like no way could you possibly eat a plant-based diet or not? No, just, you know, from a friend like you who got tired of me and asking him where he gets mm-hmm. his protein, you mm-hmm. know, cause he was a vegan. Oh, and- cause he, <laughs> I see. Now, now I right. And then he's like, why don't you just do it for 30 days? You know, what are you afraid of? Just try it. See if it works for you. And I'm like, all right, you got nothing better to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And, and I'm going to do it. And I actually did it like more strict than he was doing it. Cause he mm-hmm. was, he was telling me like, well, every once in a while I'll do this or that. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to have anything. I'm not going to consume anything that has animal, any trace amount of animal. You were very alcoholic about it. Yes, of course. I was very (laughs) addict about it. Exactly. And, uh, um, so I did it for 30 days and I mean, I felt like I was on drugs. I mean, I felt so crazy good. You know, I felt Mm -hmm. aware and light and fast and my, I was recovering from my workouts better. And, you know, lots of things were changing at the same time. I was changing the volume of training. I was changing my mental focus and I changed my diet all at the same time. And it was just like the perfect storm, I think, for me as an athlete. And I just never looked back. I've said all along, the, the day I feel I'm missing something from my diet, I'll go have it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not on a, a moral mission, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to make the world vegan. It's, it's just about feeling better and being healthy. I understood a whole new level of what health was. Interesting. Yeah. That, and how long ago was that? Four years. Four years and still haven't gone back. Huh? Nope. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, I like that, that. I like the openness, you know, the idea that you're listening to your body and this is working for you. And if it, if it wasn't, you would change. You, you don't seem to have a dogmatic approach to it, but rather a pretty, you know, scientific kind of rational perspective on it. And hey, if it's if you think it's making you faster, certainly you dropped an extra twenty pounds. So there's something right there. But um, that's cool. I try to apply my insanity in very logical ways. <laughs> <laughs> How to apply insanity to improve your life? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna grapple with this over the next couple of days. There's a difference between crazy and chemically imbalanced. Uh-huh. It's cool. the chemically imbalanced you gotta mm-hmm. watch out for. <laughs> 
Yeah, after uh, the podcast with Dean, you know, it wasn't a, wasn't a nutrition. I mean, I was talking to him about how his nutrition has changed, but you know, he's he's certainly not vegan. I mean, he eats, you know, he eats kind of like it's what it sounds like you were eating before you made the switch. But after we were done, he's like, really, you know, like how does that work? And you know, he's, <laughs> he was inquisitive, like he's interested, but he was also very like dubious, like I want to see your hematocrit, you know, right? Like, I'll send it to you, sure. You know, like, um, but yeah, I mean, I feel the same. I, I feel the same way in the sense that if my body started to feel like things weren't working, you know, then I have to be open enough to reevaluate. Like I have to be willing to step outside, um, you know, the label and the dogma. You know, I've kind of painted myself into a corner here with this thing. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm the I'm the plant based athlete guy, but the truth of the matter is, it's been eight years and it's been fantastic. So I have no reason to to you know second guess it unless something changes. But so far so good and it's encouraging and cool to hear that that's been part of your journey yeah yeah a, a big unexpected part of it that's you know just i think made my life better in mm-hmm. lots of different ways mm-hmm. i mean what what was uh you know when you were going out and you were you were able to recover better i mean you know is there anything more specific just be, being able to bounce back between big runs yeah like um just really tangible things of of noticing you know that i'm in increasing my level, my volume, overall volume of training. Mm-hmm. I started doing, you know, two, three hour runs several times a week and I was okay and not just okay, but getting stronger. And a lot of the trails that I was, you know, hiking up because they were super steep, like I have this one route, Bear Peak and Boulder that I go up and I was running things that I, I couldn't run before, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's a real difference. It's like, I, I struggle from this section to this section and now I'm, I'm pushing it faster. I'm going faster and um, that's always like the big fear, especially if you dealt with injury in, in your life, that you're going to increase your right. training volume and you're just going to go backwards. So I was very, I had to learn the hard way that if my brain's tired, you know, if it's my brain pushing back at me, that I keep going. But if mm-hmm. it's my body pushing back, I listen to it. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a hard thing to balance. Have you, do you work with a coach? How do you come up with your training protocol? Yeah, I do. I, I think coaching is, is a very valuable tool you know and you know michael jordan had a coach and everybody has a coach and you just i i i I can't trust myself to manage me you Mm -hmm. know in that way um so yeah um i've i've um benefited greatly from having marshall ulrich oh he's your coach in my in Uh my rolodex oh cool um he doesn't have time to be full-time coach but i certainly bounce all of my training by him or through him and, and get his input on it and you know like when i was i did a a 12-hour treadmill run recently where I tried mm. to try to set the world record on that. And I bounced it by Marsh. I, oh, like, I didn't know that. He's like, you got to do your back-to-back long runs on the treadmill. And I'm like, oh, damn it, he's uh-huh. right. <laughs> but I would have never done that myself. You know, I would have. Hold on a second. You tried to break the 12-hour treadmill record? Yeah. How'd that go? When I did you do I that? set the American one. Oh, you did? <laughs> well, it depends. I mean, there's the, there's two that. a couple different sources that track, you know, all of the different stuff. Right. So I was going for the Guinness record, and it was, um, quite honestly, kind of a soft record. So I knew it was kind of some low-hanging uh-huh. fruit. It was like 63 miles, and I was going to try to run 72, 73 miles, which was, you know, mm-hmm. decent. Um, and uh, what happened is um, two days before it, somebody else broke the record. Mm-hmm. And so they reported that he had run 90 miles. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I had all my friends out at my gym, and I had this big thing set up. And I was like, that's all right. I'm just going to go do the best I can. I wasn't doing it just for the recognition. I was doing it to test myself. And I ran 74 
1.5 miles, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Turns out that the numbers were reported wrong, and he'd only run 76 miles. So, oh. I, I, <laughs> oh. so yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that kind of sucked. You got to do it again. I am in January. You are. All yeah, right, cool. January, yeah. And when you want when you want it to be Guinness certified, that's a whole thing, right? It is. The they make you pay a ton of money and they want all sorts of people out. Like I know when, because when Patrick Baboumian wanted to break that uh, most weight carried, you know, it was a whole thing to like make sure that it was all like copacetic and above, like it was going to meet the requirements to qualify for that because they, it's pretty stringent, right? It is. It's really strict. You don't have to give them a bunch of money if you don't want to, but mm-hmm. it speeds the process up. Ah, you know what I mean? They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll like, you know, certify the record right away and they'll send someone out and you can use their logos and marketing and all I that. See. But um, no, we had to have like, the whole thing had to be video recorded and I needed witnesses and judges and, you know, obviously mm-hmm. the treadmill. You have to calibrate the yeah. treadmill and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's another place called like recordholders.org that tracks mm-hmm. it. Um, according to their information, I think I ran like the third best time by an American. And nice, man. According to Guinness, it was. That's insane. Yeah. That's so cool. For a former fat guy. Right. That's incredible, man. But I mean, there's, there's so many other people who have run so much farther than that out there. But Listen, there's always somebody who's done some crazier thing, especially now in the ultra world. Like, you know, <laughs> look, man, you know, there's no end of nutty. You know? right. So There's always someone crazy. You know what I mean? If you can find, you know, a stone that's unturned in that world, then that's a stone worth overturning, I think. So, uh, all right. So a couple Leadville's, Badwater 2013, and then you went back to Badwater this year. Yeah. Didn't things go, things didn't quite go as planned. I mean, what is... What's next? Like what? What's getting you out of bed? What's motivating you? Like what is the what is that stone that's left unturned out there for you? Well, to me, it's to stay in the game and to 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 keep in the process, right? Um, I would say, you know, my running, my journey. It's not supposed to be anything. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. So I just want to keep going, um, whatever that means. So mm-hmm. I'm always aware and looking around for for new things to do and and I do have something kind of big planned for for next year. It's my 10th sober birthday. Mm. So I wanted to do something kind of special for that. Something I wasn't yeah, prepared on you're, you're like you got a little <laughs> smile. I, I could tell you don't really want to tell me, but you kind of do. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. So um I decided that I was going to go try to run the Leadville 100 twice. I was going to do the mm. do the double. Whoa. And um, the reason why I haven't put it out there is not because I'm afraid of it or it's anything. It's out there now. But I well, didn't. it will be when I publish. <laughs> no, that's fine. You know, I've, I've talked right. to people about it. But, um, you know, people have done double bad water, triple yeah, bad yeah. water, quad uh-huh. bad water, all that. But le- no one's done Leadville. So Nobody's done a, a double Leadville. No one's done it. Wow. Um, so I'm sure someone will come along and do it really, really fast. Yeah, but but right. um, um, that's okay. I'd, I'd like to be the first person to do it. But if someone comes up out there and, and does it at the same time I do, then we'll just shale the trail together. So. Mm-hmm. But I hope no one does it. That's pretty cool, <laughs> man. That's a big deal. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. So wait, wait, when is Leadville again? August. August. Okay. So you got a little time. Yeah. You must be training pretty hard right now, though. I've got uh, Javelina 100 mm-hmm. in a few days. And I got some other, I got the treadmill run planned too mm-hmm. in January. January. Hundreds. And I'll be back at Badwater too. We're, mm-hmm. we're a little unsure exactly when it's going to be with the new, the new changes to the park. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, in 2013, you ran 
what is probably the last time that anyone will run that original course. I think it actually is going to be back in the original course. Oh, really? Yeah, it's just going to be different because the the new study they did and everything won't let them do it between June and July or something. I don't want to misquote mm. the study, but mm-hmm. the, but uh, they can't have it in the in the hottest part of the year. Like, so they could have it in August then instead or something? Yeah, they're going to do something and, and no one really knows what yet. It's kind of hush-hush. I don't know. But oh, interesting. Hopefully it's not you know the week before Leadville or something like that. Right, right. I mean, what was the biggest difference that you noticed from the course change from 13 to 14? It was just a different race, and it was a great race. Um, it, was, it was put on really well. It was really challenging, super challenging. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it was hot, but not bad water hot. Mm-hmm. And the heat came late in the day, which definitely posed different, you know, different mm-hmm. challenges. Mm-hmm. And the first, like, 23 miles is straight uphill. You right. Know, that was the thing. Yeah. yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah that's well, that's kind of my problem is I ran the first 46 miles in, like, eight hours this year. and Right. And then just kind of fell apart, like, at the worst possible time. There's another big climb that goes up, like, 5,000 feet mm-hmm. over seven miles, and there's no crew access or anything. Mm-hmm. You're just kind of out there, and that's when I was really suffering. Mm-hmm. Just another learning experience. It, you know, yeah. got to go back, unfinished business. That's right. Um, I, I want to get back to uh, this idea of transformation, of reinvention. You know, you went from this place of complete despair, complete, uh, you know, disrepair in your health to, you know, attempting Guinness Book of World Record, you know, holding runs. I mean... The arc is is just mind blowing. So, for somebody who's out there listening, you know what is what is something that you could leave us with to try to help that person out there who's stuck, who can't take that first step, or just is paralyzed. You know, knows that there's a better life for him or her out there, and can't see their way through it. Um, my advice would be that you don't have to see it, you know, in fact, you, you probably won't be able to ever see it from the, the views obstructed, right? You, you can't mm-hmm. see it from where you are that you have to trust that there is a way out and that it's not always going to seem hopeless and you just have to take that blind first step forward. And that's, that's why this ultra thing speaks so well to me because the process is the same, you know, the process was the same to wake up on my bathroom floor and say, I'm going to. I'm going to give this all up as it is to line up for bad water. You know, if you, mm-hmm. if you try to hold the weight of it, it'll crush you and fold you up. You know, you can't do it. So you got to trust the process and, and just um, be willing to not wrestle every single voice, every single thought down into the ground and just, just keep moving forward blindly. And, you know, that was the process when you talked about that, that arc, mm-hmm. you know, I became a runner and did all these things after I found sobriety. And I did that because I changed kind of my image of who I was. I, I, I decided I was a different person. But then I realized that I had also pigeonholed who I was as a runner too. And I was, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just doing this, you know, because, you know, I'm always going to be slow. I used to joke, you know, I'm, I'm, I start out slow and then I taper off and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, maybe that's not true either. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's just a, a bunch of crap I sold myself to. So 
you know, I'm going to put it out there and just see what happens. And if I'm, if I can't be any faster, that's fine, but I'm not going to not be faster because I decided I was before I ever tried it. So mm-hmm. don't decide who you are, you know, because of where you are right now. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully put. You know, I think that, that, uh, the approach that I take to sobriety is the same approach that I take to food is the same approach that I take to training. And what you learn in recovery is, as stupid as it sounds, and it's really fucking stupid, it's one day at a time, man. It you know, it's about making sure that my head hits that pillow tonight sober, and that's all I got to worry about. In the context of food, what am I eating right now? What's my next meal? In the context of training, what's the run or the ride that I'm doing today? If I start thinking about some crazy race, you know, you just get you 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 get scared, you get stuck. You start running stories and scenarios in your mind that, you know, probably are not productive. So I find it super helpful to just be in the moment of what you're doing and getting comfortable with the idea that you don't know where it's going, nor should you, you know? It's like part of that surrender is saying, I'm not going to drink today. I don't know what that means, but that's not what I, you know, I'm not somebody who drinks. I'm not doing that today. And it's not what you say. It's what you do. Absolutely. And when you wake up every day and you go running or you wake up every day and you don't take a drink, then you string that together over a little period of time and the story about who you are begins to change and the way that people interact with you begins to change and how you start to feel about who you are begins to change. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. And then a whole new journey takes place, right? You learn something you don't know about yourself. Mm-hmm. David Clark, you are an inspiration, man. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. For coming down. I really appreciate it. Uh, The book is called Out There, and you can find it everywhere. It's on Amazon, right? Yes. In bookstores. I highly recommend it. It's amazing. Uh, It's an amazing story of, like I said before, despair to triumph. It's pretty cool. I can't wait to see what you're going to do next, man. Thanks, bud. You know, I've I've said all along that ultimately the the most – power that the story has is if it's it's not just me you know i'm mm-hmm. not the only one with this story especially sitting here talking mm-hmm. to you well there's lots of people with this story i just get lucky enough to be able to talk about it a lot um if it's just one person you know is oh that guy's special you know he's yeah. he's just he's just stubborn or whatever he's got something that i don't but that's just not the way it is you know there's a lot of us out there and so mm-hmm. the more the merrier if if you're out there running and, and doing crazy things and experiencing life and you you want some other people to to do it with you know we're there mm-hmm. very cool man all right david thanks so much right on peace yeah plants <laughs> <laughs> that was tough dave you will be deeply profoundly missed but you are loved immensely by myself and so many people so run free my friend run free if you want to support dave and his family pick up one of his books out there broken open or his newest book eat shit and die i think that's a great way to keep dave in our hearts and also support his family in addition As we mentioned in the intro, Mishka and Josh and I set up a GoFundMe. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Please support if you can. And remember, life is short. Life is precious. So 
Let's make the most out of every moment that we can, my friends. And on May 30, let's try to get outside, run whatever you can to honor this beautiful man's legacy. See you back here in a couple days with another episode. Until then, peace, plants, grace, and namaste. Yeah.